and welcome to Never the Twins Shall Meet, a podcast hosted by twin sisters, separated by distance, but united by nerdiness. I'm your host, Lulu. And I'm your co-host, Pi. I feel like I've said this at the start of all of the episodes we've recorded recently, but it has been a really long time since we recorded, and for that, I apologize. But we are here to amend that today because we have an episode about everyone's favorite dirtbag warlock, John Constantine, from DC's Hellblazer Comics. This is an episode that has been really, really long in the making, so I'm really excited that we are finally sitting down and actually putting our thoughts on this character in the comics into podcast form. But I think before we get started, we're just going to talk a little bit about what we've been into and what we've been up to since last time we recorded. So is there anything you want to mention, Pi? So like you said, it has been ages and ages since we recorded an episode because when you're a senior in college, it turns out you're really busy doing lots of things all the time. Uh, But I have been consuming some good media lately. I've had a particularly good run with TV in the last couple of weeks. I recently finished watching the Netflix adaptation of Lockwood & Co., which is one of my favorite book series by Jonathan Stroud and is been adapted into a TV show about a trio of teenagers living in a world that's like an alternate version of England where teenagers who can sense ghosts hunt them. And it's a really great adaptation. I enjoyed it a lot. It's really spooky. It's really funny. The three leads are fantastic. It is a double thumbs up for me and I very much hope it does not fall prey to the Netflix cancellation curse and gets a second season. I'm also, like many people on the internet, watching the currently airing TV show The Last of Us, which is based off a video game that I know basically nothing about because I'm not really a video game person, but it's essentially a post-apocalyptic story that takes place in a version of the United States has been devastated by a very evil fungus that turns people into evil mushroom zombies. And it's kind of the story of like what happens after the end and how people keep on going and what they turn into and what they can become, both of the mushroom variety and of like the character development variety. And it's really good. The actors are both fantastic. There's also a very feral teenage girl that I enjoy a lot. And so far it is a very good adaptation of a story that I didn't know much about, but I'm enjoying a lot. I'm also watching season two of The Legend of Vox Machina, which is an animated TV show originally based off of a recorded YouTube series of D&D games, which I've never actually watched because there are way too many hours for me, but I'm enjoying the TV show a lot. It's basically like a bunch of disaster D&D characters running around trying to save the world from a dragon apocalypse while dealing with their own issues. I've been enjoying it a lot so far. I've also read a couple of good books recently. I finished reading Sea Sparrow by Kristen Cashore, which is the fifth book in her long-running Graceling Realm series, and it is about Hava, a young woman who has the ability to shapeshift herself into looking like anything other than what she actually is. And so it's partially a wilderness survival story about a bunch of characters who get shipwrecked slowly traveling through the Arctic back to civilization, but is also partially a story about coming of age and dealing with your childhood trauma and trying to figure out who you want to be as an adult and what kind of things you want to do with your life. And it was a really powerful book. I enjoyed it a lot. And finally, I also read Thistlefoot by Jenna Rose Nethercott, which is a super interesting urban fantasy novel about Isaac and Bellatine Yaga, descendants of the Baba Yaga, who inherit her famous chicken-legged hut and then proceed to take it on a road trip through America and perform puppet shows along the way. It's a really interesting novel. It's about Jewish history and family history and the importance of remembering that history, even if you don't want to, and also about puppet shows and magical abilities and complex sibling relationships. And it was really good and intriguing. I think I'll be thinking about it for a long time. So that is what I've been up to. Is there anything that you've been up to or into, Lulu? 
not quite as much as you, but I do have a couple things I want to mention. I think during our last episode, I mentioned that I was deep in the throes of an obsession with the new interview with the Vampire TV show. And that obsession is now somewhat passed because the TV show is done airing and I have overthought every episode to a ridiculous degree. But I did go and do that thing where you watch completely unrelated pieces of media because an actor in it from one thing is in it. So I went and watched this Australian TV show called The Newsreader, which is kind of an 80s historical drama. I mean, it's set in the 80s. It came out recently about a group of news reporters and it sort of follows a kind of young up and coming newsreader who starts a relationship with an older, more experienced one. And they kind of have to navigate public personas versus private life and the chaos in a newsroom as they try to put forward like very authoritative and smart news personas. I don't know. It played with a lot of stuff about like public personas and acting and character relationships that I really liked. So that was kind of like a surprise niche TV show I had not heard of and then went and watched because one actor I thought was good in it, but I actually liked it a lot. And I also have been watching the new Star Wars TV show Andor. I have a very on-again, off-again relationship with Star Wars because I get invested and then I realize it's bad and then my heart is broken. And then a couple months later, I'm like, but what if Star Wars is good and this time I could get into it again? And that kind of happens frequently. But this one is actually good. It's kind of like a spy thriller about resisting fascism that happens to be set in the Star Wars universe. So it's very tense and kind of gritty and morally complex. And there's like heists and prison breaks and discussions of what to sacrifice for the greater good. I'm not quite done with it, but I'm really enjoying it. I'm kind of like, damn, how is this Star Wars? Like the same franchise that produced somehow Palpatine Return also made this TV show and I don't understand, but you know, I'm enjoying it. I've also watched both of these TV shows and I second them. I enjoyed them both a lot. Also January, which is the month that has just passed as we're recording this, turned out to be a really great month for me reading classic books and being like, wow, did you know that classics endure because they're good? Because I read The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson, which is kind of a really well-known gothic horror novel about a group of researchers who decide to go investigate psychic phenomena at this really weird, creepy house called Hill House that has all sorts of weird stories about like ominous deaths and just general sinisterness. It has a fantastic atmosphere. It's not like gore and jump scare type horror. It's like very psychological and kind of explores like the lies people tell themselves and sort of loneliness. And it really like digs into the psychology of the characters as well as just having this really great claustrophobic setting of the house. So that was fantastic. Turns out that Shirley Jackson is a good author, who knew? And I also read Kindred by Octavia Butler, which is a kind of classic science fiction novel. It's about an African-American woman living in present day America who starts spontaneously time traveling. And she eventually realizes that she's being drawn back in time to save the life of one of her ancestors, who is the white son of a plantation owner. And it basically is a science fiction story that's not so much about time travel as it is about the horrors of American slavery and how terrible it would be to like be thrust into the past in a time period where you're not considered a person, you have no rights. And it's kind of like a psychological exploration of slavery and the toll that it takes on people. Really intense, but really good. Octavia Butler is just so good at what she does. It was just very fantastic. Both great books. But yeah, that's what I've been into recently. And we should probably start talking about the actual topic of this episode now, because we have a lot of thoughts on John Constantine and Hellblazer comics. So basically, the premise of this episode is we are doing a deep dive into the DC Comics character, John Constantine. We read a lot of Hellblazer comics. 
we watched some adaptations and now we're going to sort of talk about them in general. But also one thing is that we are naturally going to be saying the word hell a lot in an episode about Hellblazer comics. So Apple Podcasts, please do not smite us for swearing considering we are rated clean, but your podcast content guidelines are very, very vague. So like, don't smite us for this, please. I considered just saying Heckblazer for the entire episode, but I was like, that would be a lot. I don't think we should say heck blazer the entire time. I think the spirit of John Constantine would disapprove of that, so we're not going to do that. Okay, that's fair. So both of us had read some appearances of the character John Constantine before we decided to do this deep dive. He turns up briefly in the first volume of Sandman by Neil Gaiman, and he also is featured in the recent DC Pride anthology that we covered a while ago. He had a story by Steve Orlando. We also have read some like kind of modern comics by John Constantine, um, which is Constantine the Hellblazer by James Tinian IV and Ming Doyle, which we mostly enjoyed. And that kind of piqued my curiosity about the character. And I was like, I would like to go back and learn more about this like warlock man and his gritty magical world that he exists in. So we went back to the very start and started reading some classic Hellblazer comics and then kind of went and watched some film and TV adaptations of them. I feel like I should mention that I'm pretty sure the first time that I ever encountered John Constantine in comic form was in the DC Elseworlds series DC Bombshells by Marguerite Bennett, which is a 1940s female-led version of DC Comics in which Constantine features, but he is turned into a rabbit and spends the entire first arc being carried around by Zatanna. And I think that was a very dignified entrance for me to encounter one of the most iconic characters in DC Comics personally. Zatanna, if you're not familiar, is a female character from DC Comics, and she's a stage magician who has real magic, and they often get paired together because they're both, like, magical characters from DC. Yeah, so we basically wanted to get a solid background in Hell Luther Comics, because it turns out that, like, most of us had read these, like, random couple appearances and, like, reboots of Hellblazer and stuff, but we sort of worked to track down the older comics from like the 80s and 90s because I was like, I want to go back to the start. This character intrigues me. He's kind of like very gritty and morally complex and there's magic and kind of horror noir stuff going on and that intrigued me. So we went back to start with Hellblazer Original Sins by Jamie Delano, which is the very, very beginning of Constantine's solo series. It actually took a little bit of work for me to track this down because the thing about reading comics based on what's available at the local library is that you often read the more recent stuff first and then you have to work to track down the older comics which the libraries don't necessarily have or at least don't have like displayed in obvious places in the new comic section and Constantine is a character who has evolved a lot over the decades that he has been written. His solo series ran for like literally hundreds of issues. I'm not sure how many, but it was definitely over a hundred. It might've been 200. And he's a really interesting character, but I think that a lot of his most powerful and interesting stories are older ones. And I had read him in like a couple appearances, but he was like funny wizard man who has bad morals and does magic and sleeps with demons sometimes. And I was like, he seems interesting, but like, I really want to like dig into Constantine. Like, who is he? What are the most iconic stories that he's been in? And so that is how we ended up beginning with Jamie Delano's original sins. Constantine actually first appeared in Swamp Thing, and then it kind of spun off into his own title. And maybe some context that would be helpful to know is that DC Comics used to have an imprint called Vertigo. It's now called Black Label, I think. But Vertigo Comics was like adult kind of horror fantasy comics. So Swamp Thing, Sandman, Hellblazer, maybe some other stuff. So he's published by DC Comics, but it's not really a superhero comic and it's much darker and more violent 
than something you might pick up at like the Justice League or something. So when we're talking about John Constantine as a DC Comics character, it's pretty different from like the, the general perception of DC Comics because he literally belonged to like a specific label that was DC, but make it really dark and gritty. So Swamp Thing was one of those comics that was on uh, Vertigo, I believe. I have not really read any Swamp Thing, but I did read a couple of the issues that he at first appears in because they were like bound up in a collected volume of Hellblazer I read. And I don't really want to talk about them because I don't really know what was going on there. And I also didn't particularly like it. So we won't be talking about them too much. But essentially, he is introduced as this smart, maybe a little sinister British warlock who has lots of connections and magical knowledge. And he's kind of a snappy dresser, but also he's maybe a little bit shady. And he helps out some of the main characters with some stuff related to swamp magic or whatever. So I haven't really read Swamp Thing. I can't really comment on his role in that, but that's what he was introduced in. And then I guess because he just did like an interesting character with a lot of potential, he spun off into his own series, which is Hellblazer. Also note, Hellblazer is not really like his superhero name. It's not how like how you have Superman and then Clark Kent. You don't have John Constantine and his alter ego Hellblazer. Hellblazer just happens to be the name of the comic series. I think they wanted to call it Hellraiser, but there had been something with a similar title that came out recently and uh, they ended up just going with Hellblazer. So it's not like he doesn't have a superhero persona. He's not really a superhero character. He's a, a wizard warlock type guy who does a lot of very like down to earth street level magic. He doesn't do like superhero team ups and stuff in Hellblazer comics. Yeah, the general conceit of Hellblazer comics is that it's a gritty British urban fantasy noir series that stars Constantine and he is a magician from Liverpool who like you said is often down on his luck often a little bit ruthless a bit of a scoundrel he frequently gets into scrapes with demons ghosts and other supernatural types although he also has plenty of regular issues in his life and so it's kind of like this long-running series that's like about different things happening to Constantine in his life sometimes there are overarching arcs sometimes it's just a little a little one-off issue sometimes it's more about his personal life sometimes it's more about heaven and hell there's like a really big variety in different kinds of stories about him and like what's going on in them so if you find one particular thing that you think is interesting there's probably a comic about it just because there were like so many issues of the original run it is also technically part of the wider DC comic universe in that sometimes people will reference things like the Justice League or Arkham Asylum, but mostly Hellblazer stands on its own with its own kind of world building and cast of characters. Oh, another thing is that his name is pronounced Constantine, not Constantine, even though Constantine is the common pronunciation. So we're not mispronouncing it. We just know more than you do. Ha ha. I will say that I have read so many Hellblazer comics at this point that the pronunciation has now kind of infiltrated my daily life and it's really unfortunate. And so sometimes I'll be talking about like, I don't know, like the Byzantine Empire and I'll say Constantine instead of Constantine, which is sort of embarrassing, but oh well, that is just what I'm stuck with now. That's the struggle. So some kind of trademarks of John Constantine, he's usually having a very bad time. And he usually manages to use his wits and some magic to get out of trouble, but people who are close to him are not always that lucky, and they frequently die or get dragged to hell. To the point where he's literally haunted by the ghosts of people who have died because of him. He wears a trench coat and he smokes a lot because noir. He also was apparently designed to look like the musician Sting, which was kind of a meaningless piece of trivia for Murray because I'm a child of the 2000s, so I'm like, don't know much about that man. But I did Google John's early character design and compared it with the photo of Sting from the 80s and they just stole that man's entire face for a comic. I was like, how is this legal? That is the same man. 
But I guess they're just like, we want to make a British man. What if we just stole Sting's face and made it into a warlock character? And I guess they just got away with that. He doesn't look as much like that anymore. He has just kind of evolved to be like a blonde man in a trench coat. But early on, you're just like, no, that is just literally a drawing of Sting. I mean, the more recent Wicked and the Divine series by Karen Gillan managed to get away with styling literally all of their main characters off of existing live celebrities and they didn't get sued for it. So I guess that's just a thing you can do in comics and not get in trouble for it. I guess. Another fact about Constantine is that he is bisexual, which was established in issue 51 of the Hellblazer run, and therefore that makes him one of DC's older and most high-profile LGBTQ characters. I think we'll talk about this more because I have a lot of thoughts on that and how it has varied across different forms and writers. In-universe, he as a character has really been around the block a lot. He is a character who is kind of old and tired at times. He is 35 in Original Sins, which is not old. I'm not saying being 35 is old, but he's been involved in magic for about 20 years. And it's really taken its toll on him because he walks this kind of path between darkness and light. And he frequently loses people he loves. So he's kind of world weary. I'm not trying to say that people in their 30s are old. I'm just saying that he's been involved in magic for a really long time. Also, unlike a lot of other characters in comics, he does actually age. Like, he celebrates his 40th birthday at one point, and characters in a lot of comics are like, it's Iceman's birthday! We're not gonna say what age he's turning, because that would completely ruin our timeline continuum. But in John Constantine's case, he is a character who ages and, like, is changed by that aging and the progression of his life, at least in the earlier comics, which makes him kind of unique compared to a lot of older characters He's also a bit more of an anti-hero than a traditional hero and is willing to do kind of bad things either to save his own skin or for the greater good. For example, the very first arc of Damien Delano's Hellblazer involves him feeding a childhood friend to a hunger demon in order to stop its rampage from New York City. And this kind of thing is like kind of par for a course Constantine. Like he won't like it, but he'll do it because there's nothing else he can do. He also is often referenced as having been in a punk band called Mucus Membrane when he was younger. And that ended really badly because of this incident at Newcastle involving a very disastrous exorcism, which is considered really important to his backstory. And I think we will talk about that specific aspect of his character and how it's been adapted a little bit later on. I would also say kind of one of the defining aspects of John Constantine's character is that he is a working class guy from the north of England who got involved in magic. He's not like a wizard with a magical legacy who lives in an ivory tower and has a magic library full of grimoires or whatever. He's not from a fancy magical pedigree. He's just like a guy who got into magic and he's like very down to earth about it. And I think that was kind of the original conceit of the character was like, what if you had like a blue collar wizard who like wasn't fancy and magical. He was just a guy who had magic. Also, he really hates Margaret Thatcher, which I believe is a product of his character existing in the 80s, but I for one approve of it. There are so many issues of this comic in which he's just like, I hate Margaret Thatcher of the Tory government. And I'm like, go on, keep talking. Yeah, I mean, there's literally a whole issue. I think it's like the third issue of Delano's Hellblazer that is about how literal demons love Margaret Thatcher. And honestly, I love that energy. Like, I think comics should be really political like that. It does not shy away from being very political and like hating authority. And I'm going to just say this generally. There are definitely aspects of Hellblazer comics that I think have not aged super well. And sometimes you can tell that authors were trying to deal with sensitive topics and maybe like overreached or mishandled them a little bit. But I do think for me, an important pillar of John Constantine and and Hellblazer is that it is a horror 
kind of supernatural noir comic that is also very political and has a lot of societal commentary about like people in authority abusing their power and what it means to kind of like be marginalized by society. So I think like that starts off being part of Constantine's vibe like really early on. And I think like that is integral to the vibe of Hellblazer. It's not just like, whoa, fun with angels and demons. It's like, what does it mean to be powerful and have power and stuff like that? Yeah, I feel like if you're writing a Constantine story and it doesn't involve some kind of critique of like the monarchy or the government abusing its power or police brutality, then it's not like quite like fitting the vibes of a true Constantine story. You can do lighter ones if you want, but I think like the really good Constantine stories are the ones that are unafraid to kind of like dig into serious issues. Also, another important thing about Constantine, I think, is that he does do magic, but especially in the older stories, he tends to rely a lot on his wits to defeat the bad guys. Like, there's one particular arc uh, of Delano's run called The Family Man, in which I don't think Constantine does a single act of magic in that entire comic arc, but he still ends up managing to defeat the bad guy at the end of the day. And I think that's kind of an interesting take on the character, that he can do magic, but he doesn't always need to he can either get out through his wits or by making someone else do his dirty work uh, he doesn't really cast like glowy magical spells like dr strange although that has changed in recent years he's a character who's like not the most powerful guy to exist he knows some tricks but like when he's up against someone who's much more powerful than him, he's like okay what can i do to get out of this besides like defeating him in magical combat yeah i think that's definitely an important part of the character which has evolved to be maybe less prevalent especially when he's like i don't know in justice league team ups or something they're often like he's the magic guy but i think early on especially in delano comics it's like magic is something to be used sparingly that has a really high cost and john is aware of that so it's not like he's flinging spells left and right like there are whole arcs where he won't use magic at all himself but that has changed a little bit recently and i think it's evolved under different writers like garth ennis's run on hellblazer has much more about angels and demons than jamie delano so it also it varies even in the class classic comics but I think the old ones it is very sparing about the actual use of magic which is quite interesting and since I mentioned the Jamie Delano run I guess we can go back to that and sort of move chronologically so we started with Original Sin and that is the very start of John Constantine's solo comic um, I didn't write a ton of notes on this unfortunately my first note is the way Jamie Delano writes sex scenes is really weird which is not a helpful thing for me to have written I'm so sorry <laughs> I think I can talk a little bit about the beginning of the Delano run, I guess. I think what I find interesting about it is that it's not Constantine's origin story. When we meet him in Original Sins, like you said, he's 35 years old. He's been in the magic business for a while. He knows what's up and he knows like what his limits are. He's had some really bad stuff happen to him that isn't revealed until a little bit later in the comic. But like as soon as you start reading, like this is a guy who has a past. He knows some stuff, but he's made some really big mistakes, but he's still like in the magic world and kind of like knows a bit more about it than other people. So the original comic series kind of begins like in the middle of his life. The first arc is about a hunger demon in New York City. I would not recommend it to people who don't like bugs. There's a lot of bugs. It's kind of gross. I was reading this and I was like, I should not be reading this while eating lunch. And then I put it down. Oh god, yeah, the worst thing about Hellblazer is that as a college student who is very busy, which I may have emphasized once or twice in the past, I tend to do a lot of my free non-academic reading either when I am eating lunch or right before I go to bed, and I would say that the worst possible times to read a Hellblazer comic are when you're eating lunch or right before you go to bed. <laughs> so sometimes it's a little rough, the bug demon especially. I think that arc does do a good job of introducing you to Constantine in his world because it's like magic is 
really gross and horrifying. And sometimes you have to pull out like all the stops and do horrific things to stop even worse things from happening. I feel like the inclusion of voodoo and African magic in the first two issues was like maybe not done super well. But I think the moment where John realizes that the only way he can stop a hunger demon from rampaging through the entirety of New York City and killing everyone is to feed his old friend who woke it up to the demon. And he like feeds his friend to the demon and just kind of sits there and listens outside the room the whole time is like it really sets the tone for the rest of the comic, which is like this is a guy who's not necessarily a villain, but can do some pretty dark stuff like he feels really bad about it, but he still does it. Yeah, and that's why I think Constantine is interesting, because I don't want to read his comics to get, like, a really black and white story about a guy who does, like, the right thing, and the right thing is, like, good and wholesome, and the bad guys are, like, totally evil, and the way we defeat them is through being, like, better than them. I'm more interested in reading a story where it's, like, magic is bad, and sometimes you have to do bad things to defeat even worse magic, and so I think that kind of sets the whole tone for the original run. A lot of Jamie Delano's original Hellblazer stories are sort of villain of the week stories or like one or two issues, maybe a little bit more if it's part of a bigger arc. And they usually have like a villain who's maybe magical or maybe not. And Constantine defeats him using maybe magic and maybe not, probably not actually. And sometimes they delve a little bit more into John's past. Like when we meet his friend who he ends up feeding to the demon, you learn a little bit about his like past with that friend. Sometimes the Hellblazer stories get really weird and have absolutely nothing to do with angels or demons, though. Like that really weird one where John goes to the beach and takes a nap and has a dream about a nuclear meltdown is genuinely one of the weirdest issues of any comic I've ever read. Like the two-headed baby seal haunts me. <laughs> yeah, that on? was a weird issue. And even when they are involving angels and demons, they're pretty weird. Like there's this one arc with his girlfriend, Zed, who's, like, uh, escaped from a cult that's, like, trying to, like, make her have a kid with an angel. And it's just, like, a very weird arc, and it's about, like, angel, demon, babies. And I was like, what is even happening here? So, well, it's, like, the version of weird. weird. Also, sort of later on, you see more about John's backstory, like you said, especially the Newcastle incident, which is explored a lot more in the second volume. Uh, it's basically considered sort of a defining part of John's backstory and character, which is that when he was younger back in the day, like we said, he was in a punk band called Mucus Membrane and also meddled in a lot of magic that he didn't necessarily understand. And some of his, he and some of his friends tried to perform an exorcism on a young possessed girl when he was like much more confident in his magic. And it went very, very badly. Basically, John and his friends encountered this girl called Astra Logue, whose father was an evil magician, and she had summoned a demon to protect herself from him. And so John and his friends summoned another demon called Nurgal. Nurgal comes up a lot in Hellblazer comics, if only for Constantine to be like, ah, oh, Nurgal, I hate that guy. Uh, and so they want to try to defeat the demon that Astra summoned, who has gone totally out of control and has killed everyone in the building except for Astra. But they don't bind the demon correctly, and so Nurgal's just like, well... I'm just going to do whatever I want. And whatever I want is going to be dragging this girl to hell to talk about her forever. Uh, it's a very disturbing comic issue. I think it might be one of the most disturbing comic issues I've ever read. Like, if this comic was not firmly an adult run by the time that issue happened, it, like, definitely cemented it. A lot of people die. And the thing about the comic is that John tries to be a hero and ultimately it leads to one of the worst things that he has ever caused because he tries to say like take me instead don't take Astra to hell and the demon is like well I could just take both of you uh, and so it drags them both through hell and John promises before they go in that he will protect Astra and they'll get through this together and like 
they hold hands while they're being dragged into hell. But when he emerges, she is left behind. And there's like this absolutely horrifying moment where he emerges from hell and he refuses to let go of Astra's hand. And he says, like, we made it. I promised her I wouldn't let go. I promised I said he would keep her safe. And his friends are like, John, it's just her hand. The rest of her is gone and still in hell. And it is just her hand. And it's like, whoa, really horrifying. It is. I think at points it's almost like, too horrifying and i think i agree with the way that some recent adaptations have changed a little bit like the abuse that astra faces at her father's hands is maybe like a little bit too much but i think the demon stuff is dark in a way that works because it's all about basically how this incident kind of broke john constantine like he tried to be a good person he was trying to save a young girl from going to hell and in trying to save her he actually doomed her to hell completely and I think after that, that's when he kind of really takes a turn down to the dark side and is like, I can't help people. When people get close to me, they just die. So I think that is like kind of the defining moment in Constantine's backstory. And it get referenced in a lot of other versions, whether it's TV, film, comic reboots. I think it's also an important moment because it also ties a little bit to the way that Hellblazer comics can explore the horrors of the real world because after the Newcastle incident and his like total failure to save Astra, John has a complete mental breakdown and as a result is sent to an asylum afterwards. And so this is also kind of important to his backstory because there he becomes a bit more acquainted with like the real world horrors of like very bad mental institutions and the treatment you can receive receive there. And you can also see that it's not necessarily like a story that shies away from like the psychological ramifications of trying to be a hero and having bad things happen like in a lot of comics people like batman are like i'm gonna save the world and maybe like some people die but they're like at the end they're like i saved the world in this case constantine's like i tried to do a good thing and it didn't work and then he just like completely has a, a breakdown for a while until he eventually recovers so it's like a really dark story but i do think it's one of the more important aspects of his backstory and it's referenced in pretty much all adaptations of constantine that are trying to be accurate to the source material i think like legends of tomorrow sandman the sandman tv show various comic reboots they all mention the Newcastle incident in some form just because it's so fundamental to like the way that Constantine sees himself as not really a hero and also the way that he like knows that magic can be really dangerous to handle if you don't do it right. Another thing that I think is fundamental to Constantine as a character is his bisexuality and this is something that we're going to discuss throughout this episode in regards to how different adaptations and comics have touched on it so maybe I should just lay out the bare facts here. Please do. Um, so basically, Constantine in the comics has primarily been written as dating woman for most of his comic runs, but he is bisexual and has occasionally had relationships with men. And we have a lot of thoughts on the way this has been portrayed differently. But basically, it's confirmed in issue 51 of the original Hellblazer run. But I think there are a lot of hints about it earlier on. For instance, at one point, his then girlfriend Zed asks Ray, who is one of John's friends and an older gay man, if they're ever involved. And Ray's answer is just like, something along the lines of, no, I was in a relationship with when we met and not, no, John is straight. So I think that kind of raises the possibility that John is someone who has or could have relationships with men, even though at that time in the comic, it wasn't confirmed. And also there's various stories like that just kind of show that John's social circles of like humans include queer people, which I think is like a notable detail. And I just think the fact that Ray is written as being kind of this friend and mentor figure for John and is an older gay man is like significant. Like that's someone who is important in his life. But uh, it's not actually confirmed until issue 51, counting to 10, 
which is written by guest writer John Smith. And this is during the middle of the Garth Ennis run. And Garth Ennis is a much more well-known comic writer for John Constantine. But I think John Smith has had like an impact on Constantine as a character because of this. And it's kind of a more low-key story about John just like doing laundry and kind of reflecting on his life and relationships. And at one point, the narration says, girlfriends, the odd boyfriend, they all have a nasty habit of walking out on me. So he's just kind of reflecting on how all of his relationships end badly, regardless of gender, but it does confirm that he has like dated men. And I think that really lines up with the character and what you've seen of him so far, because like there are hints that he doesn't just date women and that his social circles include gay people, which so I think that just like makes sense for the character. Yeah. And I think we'll mention this a little bit more later on, but there's like a point where like Constantine meets up with an old female friend of his that he ends up later having a relationship with. And he's like reminiscing, like when he used to be friends with this woman and her partner who was a guy and he was like, I loved them both. And you're like, okay, so you're romantically in love with this woman. And probably like also that's supposed to mean you were romantically in love with that man as well. And so there's like a lot of moments, I think in this that you can look back even before issue 51 and you're like, yeah, I think this was like implying that Constantine is not straight. Like the way that he like talks about some of his relationships or like, male characters that he meets or like the fact that like you said his social circle does include queer people which means that like he's not just like a straight guy drifting through the world only interacting with straight people even before it's officially confirmed that he's bi so it's one of those things where some people are like but it wasn't confirmed until a really long time into his solo run I'm like yeah but like if you look then it's still there it's just kind of confirming a thing that's already been hinted a lot I think right and like by the thing about his social circles, including queer people, I don't mean that being friends with gay people means you're not straight. I just mean that that was a conscious choice for the writers to make, to be like, this is what John's world consists of. And also he as a character was like, you know, he he started out being written in like the 80s and there wasn't a ton of gay representation in comics at that point. So I think it was like a specific point to be like, John is friends with someone like Ray who is gay to be like, okay, so that's part of John's life. Uh, but basically, when there was a TV show adaptation of Hellblazer comics called Constantine that came out a few years ago, the showrunner was like, being bisexual isn't a huge part of John's character, so we aren't going to make an effort to include that in the show, which I think is kind of an infuriating take, because I think it's true that it's not something that gets brought up in every issue or every arc or under every writer, and John's love interests are primarily women. But I think it is something that I see as being important to the character for a couple of reasons. And the first one is that early Hellblazer is very political. And John is always written as someone whose working class identity has very much shaped his life. So I think it's a waste if you don't think about how his bisexual identity would also shape him. Like early Hellblazer, right out the gate, it's like, I hate Margaret Thatcher, issue three. Like it's not really a comic that shies away from having social commentary. And Margaret Thatcher was really bad to working class people, but also she was really bad to queer people because she was behind like section 28, which was this thing in place in British schools where teachers like couldn't positively talk about LGBTQ people. So if he hates Margaret Thatcher for multiple reasons, that would make sense. And we also see in some other issues of Hellblazer comics that talks a bit about Constantine's relationship with his father when he was younger and the comics kind of talk about how Constantine's father like never liked his son partially because he blamed him for the death of his wife but also partially because like John grew up to be like a punk anarchist kid who did magic and like was in a band and like dressed weirdly and you're like well if you add bisexuality into that that would kind of be like another layer of his strained relationship with his father. Oh yeah and there are like literally issues where you have flashbacks and his father like says homophobic stuff to him by being like you're really weak and effeminate kind of so I think that really ties into like 
also his backstory. And also I think Constantine generally as a character is written as being an outsider, a misfit, a punk, someone who hates authority and lives on the edges of society. And I, I think it would just be important. That's important to his character. So I think it could be easy to read that as being tied to his bisexuality. Someone who is like, you know, he is a white British guy, but also he's aware of the way that it feels to be kind of ground beneath the heel of society because of like his class, his family background, his sexuality. And I think that might be kind of one of the reasons that he turns to magic because he's like looking for a way to get power in this world. So I think it actually is important to his character, even if it doesn't come up like often. Like you can read classic Calabrese comics and it won't get brought up frequently. But I personally think that if media about Constantine can rehash his entire backstory, like him being from Liverpool and getting into magic when he's young and joining a punk band and the Newcastle incident and living in London and stuff like that, they should also include the fact that he is bisexual and just think about the way that that has shaped him. Because I think you can have stories in which characters' identities are important to them that's not just about like, I realize that I'm bisexual. Like, you can just be like, a character exists in the world and that like shapes their worldview and their relationships. Especially because I feel like John is always someone, like, writers can just be like, pull out, oh yeah, this thing happened in his backstory. He dated this character. This is something that's already happened. Because he has this like, long history of already being involved in magic and making enemies and friends prior to Hellblazer. So it's a comic that's very concerned with his backstory and people that he's already met. And I think like if you ignore the fact that he's bisexual and that presumably shapes his life and his relationships, that's just like boring and a waste. So I, I think it's like important to the character, even if it doesn't actually come up that much in classic Hellblazer comics. I don't think I could have put it better myself. I agree with that. Basically, we both think that the Constantine TV show was not great for ignoring his bisexuality. And then it also got cancelled, which is maybe karma. Also, I have been pleased to see that more recent Constantine media has been like exploring his bisexuality and how that might shape him. I have not like also super up to date on stuff like Legends of Tomorrow or the new Hellblazer comics, but I do believe that's something they've been working in a little bit more, which I think is interesting because it's not you know, touched on a ton in the early comics, but I think it is an area that people could look into. He also has been written more recently for the first time by openly bisexual writers like Steve Orlando and James Tinney IV, who was the one who gave him like his first like on-page non-flashback long-lasting boyfriend character. I haven't finished that run, but like I know that they he did have a relationship with another guy in it for at least several issues, which is more issues than he had in any of the other comics that I read. So like it's an important part of his character. I think it's becoming like more of a thing in recent years. Let's see what else should we talk about. Okay, I think we can move on to the rest of Jamie Delano's Hellblazer run. Right. So the one of the final arcs in the Delano Hellblazer is the Family Man, and it's an arc in which John kind of becomes entangled with this serial killer who only targets happy families. And I personally am creeped out by stories about serial killers, so I don't seek them out that much. And it wasn't like my favorite Hellblazer storyline, but I think it was interesting to see John deal with a mundane threat, which is a killer who kills people not with magic, but just like the regular way you kill people. And the way that he has to kind of find non-magical ways to defeat this guy was interesting. I think it's interesting to me that one of Constantine's 
defining features in modern comics is that he's a magician who does magic, but he actually does very little magic in early stories. And apart from the appearance of one single ghost in this arc, it is a straightforward serial killer storyline with zero magic in it. Besides that, it's mostly just like about this serial killer and Constantine having to deal with like this guy who's only targeting happy families, which kind of makes him have to go back to his roots and think about his like own unhappy family and his like strained relationship with his father and his like slightly strained but still not totally positive relationship with his older sister so it's really more an arc that's like about serial killers but also about family drama and not so much about like magic or heaven or hell or demons yeah and he ends up dispatching the serial killer with a gun and it's kind of like this whole thing where he's like i didn't want to have to resort to this so that was quite interesting i think as much as John often does bad things, he's also a character who does at least feel bad about them, whether that is magical or mundane. Like in an earlier arc, I forget the name of it, but it's the one where he's in the English countryside. He uses magic to wipe someone's mind and then is like, that was horrible of me. I can't believe I did that. And that's the only use of magic in the entire arc, even though there are some stuff about like ley lines that other characters are involved in. And the family man is also kind of similarly about the price of using violence to take down a killer but in this case he he's just like i don't want to use a gun but i have to and that was just sort of interesting to read i also thought that the thing about constantine killing the serial killer with a gun was interesting because i feel like it was a much more british way of writing about gun violence than in america where bad guys get killed with guns all the time in our media and it's not really like a big deal but in this case, Constantine kills the guy because he doesn't have any other choice. It's like kill or be killed. And he's like, that's awful. I never want to use one of these ever again. That was the worst. And then like throws it away. So it's kind of a story that actually looks really hard at like the violence that you inflict on other people. And it's like, it's not like, it's not one of those stories where it's like, ooh, you killed the bad guy. That means you're as bad as them. It's like, I had to kill this guy who's going to kill me, but I feel really bad about it. And I don't want to, have to do that kind of thing again. And it also has like some interesting exploration of his relationship with his father and his sister, which I always find interesting to read about because they're not involved in magic. So it's usually just like a straightforward family drama, but I still find it kind of intriguing to read about. Another story that I liked from that era of the comics was Hold Me by Neil Gaiman. I'm surprised that Neil Gaiman hasn't written more Hellblazer because he did write like all of Sandman but maybe he was just busy with that. But I thought it was a good single issue. It is basically about the ghost of a homeless man who froze to death and he just wants someone to acknowledge him. And the story just kind of culminates with Constantine giving him a hug and sending him on his way and sort of like moving on to the next life. And I don't know, I like how loser stories that acknowledge that Constantine might often be a cynical loner and that's kind of the result of the bad stuff that's happened to him or that he's done or that he's got other people involved in. But he can actually be kind of compassionate. Like, that's kind of the opposite of the family man story because it's not a story about solving a problem with violence. It's about solving with compassion. The ghost just wants to be seen and to be remembered. And Constantine gives that to him for a minute. And they sort of like two lonely souls find each other and that brings them both peace. And it's like, it's a very, it's a very good like one-off issue. And I liked it. I agree. I also quite liked it for the reasons that you did. It is true that Constantine can be like, very cynical and a loner and he's like maybe I'm better off without having relationships with other people but he can actually be like quite sociable and charming if he wants to be and like he does actually care about people a lot he just really doesn't want to admit that either to them or to himself like there's a good arc uh like you mentioned 
the one in the British countryside, which was like, I feel so, so about the plot in that, but I did like the section that is about Constantine kind of like falling in with a group of hippies that are traveling throughout the countryside. And you can see that he's actually like quite sociable. And like, he talks a lot when he's nervous and he like wants to like have them like him and like have a place that he can call home briefly. And so I kind of like stories like Holby and that one that acknowledge that like Constantine has gone through a lot of bad stuff that has shaped his worldview, but he's also not like inherently a person that wants me or needs no connections with other people and doesn't care about anyone at all except himself so true also the follow-up arc for the family man is quite good it's called morning of the magician and basically john's father is killed by the serial killer the family man and then he has to go home for thomas constantine's funeral and it's really good because it's also kind of an explanation of john's troubled relationship with his father both how it was like magically troubled and just kind of in a mundane abusive way because it turns out that john's niece Gemma is haunted by the ghost of her grandfather and she can't figure out why and she thinks she's kind of going crazy so john comes home to help her and it turns out that she's haunted by the ghost because john uh, basically performed sympathetic magic on his abusive father as a kid to get revenge and he's been preserved as a ghost because of that like he, he takes like a dead animal and kind of turns it into like a sort of voodoo doll to like inflict pain on his father and he has to sort of go destroy that to let his father move on to the next life and it's basically a magical way of showing the lingering effects of child abuse because john's mother died in childbirth giving birth to him and he was raised by his abusive father who like kind of blamed him for that and they had a really troubled relationship and also I think it's kind of an explanation of the way that people close to John get dragged into his magic, whether he means to or not, like Gemma being haunted. I think John is kind of horrified when she realizes that she is now kind of dealing with the effects of this. But yeah, it's an interesting story to me because it's basically about dealing with your complicated um, emotions over your abusive father having died abruptly, but like using a ghost as the allegory to explore that. Yeah, it's one of those arcs in which like the supernatural elements are there, but they're pretty light and they're more kind of being used to explore like the character's psychology, like how Constantine feels about how his father's death and how Gemma feels about it and about how his older sister Cheryl feels about it. And Gemma is also an interesting character to me because her mom, Cheryl, isn't really involved in any magic stuff and she doesn't really like understand that that's what Constantine is involved in. So she's just like... Constantine's weird he's my brother and I love him but I don't understand anything that he's doing and I kind of like don't want him to be in my life that much because he always kind of brings some sort of disaster but Gemma is really fascinated by her uncle and as a result she keeps getting dragged into this magic even when Constantine is trying to keep her out of it and so it kind of shows that like his association with the supernatural is always going to affect other people even if he doesn't want it to and it's kind of like shaping the way that Gemma grows up being aware of like the ugly side of supernatural things and also I think it sort of showcases the bad part of Constantine which is that even when magic has these sort of casualties or side effects he can't give it up he is in too deep and I think the power for him is a little bit addictive And even though, like, you know, it it often comes with this, like, incredibly steep cost, Constantine cannot untangle himself from the magical world that he's become involved in. Like, there's there's no stepping out of it. He's just in it until the end. Like, he doesn't go, oh, no, I did this terrible magic on my father and his ghost is lingering. Let me destroy that and swear off magic and go live a normal life. He destroys it and is like, well, back to London for magical stuff. Pretty much, yeah. 
I think that is about it for our favorite arcs by Delano. There was a couple other like arcs and one-off issues that he wrote. He wrote like a fair bit in the original comics, but the rest of them I didn't really care for as much. There was like this really bizarre arc at the end of the Delano run involving John's dead twin brother who was stillborn and then like something about an alternate universe. And just like, please don't ask me to explain what's going on with that. As a twin, I do not know. I simply do not know. I truly cannot explain in words what was going on there. I'm not even going to try. Oh, I do want to mention one thing about the Delano run that I found interesting is that Constantine's iconic look these days and like all media about him ever is like his tan trench coat and tie and pretty much all portrayals of him have some variation of it now, but he actually does have other clothing that he wears like a fair bit in especially the Delano run. And uh, this is a petition to bring back Constantine's blue suit that he, that he wore a few times in early issues because I thought it looked cool. And it also drives me bananas when characters wear the same exact outfit all the time and never change it. Because I'm like, don't they get bored dressed like that? Don't they want to try something else? I don't know. I just think Delano's run was sometimes a little hit or miss, but I think there was ultimately a lot of interesting stuff involving supernatural and also very human elements in it. I also have two final thoughts on this. The first one is that in addition to the blue suit, they should bring back Constantine's single earring because it was fun and funky and I liked it. And the second one is also, yeah, I think I had some mixed thoughts on the Delano run. It is a very specific writing style and a very specific way that he writes characters and stuff. So not all of it was like completely up my alley. And there were definitely some stuff where I was like, wow, this just feels really weird. I don't know what's going on here. Or this is like a little uncomfortable. But I think it is really fundamental if you want to understand the character of John Constantine to read it because it really sets up the character and like the heart of his story. And I think there are some genuinely good arcs, like the Family Man arc is actually really interesting, Mourning the Magician, stuff like that. So I think if you're interested in that character and you've encountered it in other media, it's definitely worth going back to the start and reading Delano's run, even though, like we have said, one, it's not perfect, and two, it is like definitely not for the faint of heart because it gets pretty dark. But yes, we should bring back the blue suit, please. Where is it? Come back. We miss you. <laughs> I think we can move on to the next piece of Constantine Media, which I have less of an investment in because I haven't read it. Yeah, I'm just going to talk about this briefly. I read the graphic novel Constantine, All His Engines, which is by Mike Carey. It is the basis for the animated film Constantine City of Demons, which we both watched. And then I went and read the graphic novel. I think it's a pretty good introduction to the character because it is standalone. You do not have to figure out what the heck is going on with Swamp Thing or all that stuff. It's just like a couple issues about some demons in LA and Constantine dealing with them. If you're like, this man seems interesting, but I do not want to go read 80s and 90s comics, you should go read Constantine All His Engines because it's like basically sets up the character and rehashes his backstory in like an easy accessible way. It's the basis for an animated movie, but it's uh, somewhat different in a couple notable ways. I think it was pretty good. I didn't like the character design for the main demon because I don't like it when comics make like grotesquely evil fat characters. But other than that, I thought it was pretty good and it showcases a lot of stuff about John, like the fact that he's really clever and uh, but also kind of tormented. It's also set in America and not London, which is interesting, but it's still by a British author, so it like has that vibe. So if you're like, I want to check out this man without the commitment of going through 80s and 90s comics, I would recommend that standalone graphic novel. I have not read this because I could not get it through my library, but I have read Mike Carey's terrifying British zombie books, which were published under M.R. Carey, and they were quite good. They're like The Girl of All the Gifts and The Boy on the Bridge, I think. And I've also read some of his X-Men comics, which are also quite good, and they're about Rogue, and I love Rogue. So someday I would like to read this, but I cannot say anything else about it because I haven't read it. 
Mike Carey has an actual run on Hellblazer, but I have not read it because I left off at the end of the Ennis Hellblazer run. I would love to read that at some point because I have liked his take on the character, but we did not read all 200 odd issues of Hellblazer to make this episode because I just did not have that commitment in me. So I didn't actually read that comic run, but I did read the graphic novel. And this is a nice segue into the next thing we're going to talk about, which is the animated film Constantine City of Demons based on Constantine All His Engines. It's called Constantine City Demons, but not Constantine All His Engines, because it's set in LA, and there's a lot of demons in LA, so it's the City of Demons. Get it? Well, it's because people call LA the City of Angels sometimes, so like, haha, it's a little Also joke. that. So it's an animated movie from 2018, featuring Matt Ryan, who plays Constantine on the NBC show, and also on Legend of Tomorrow, and also on other things, I guess, as the lead voice actor. Basically, he's like the Constantine expert at this point. I think he's played him more than like anyone else. So it's about Constantine's friends. Chas has a daughter, and the daughter falls into a coma, and Constantine follows the mystery of how this coma happened and who caused it to LA and gets caught off in a conspiracy of demons and magic. Maybe we should stop to explain Chaz really quickly before going on. Chaz is a character who is introduced in Delano's run and is a consistent present throughout Hellblazer comics. His full name is Chaz Chandler. I forget his first name, but there's like some convoluted thing about how he got the nickname Chaz. But uh, he is John's non-magical friend. He is just a bloke who gets dragged into trouble. John cannot really drive, and Chaz is the taxi driver, so he's often the designated driver to drive John around to demon-infested houses and stuff. He is often having a bad time, as happens when you are friends with John. So, yeah. I think it is very funny that it is a consistent fact across many pieces of Constantine media that this man can drive, but is frankly just a very bad driver and you should not allow him behind the wheel of a car, which means that Chaz has to do things like drive him from London to Scotland so they can do a demon ritual and stop the apocalypse. And along the way, he's just like, why am I doing this? But anyway, on to this story. So uh, City of Demons, along with having the conspiracy plotline about like who put Chaz's daughter in a coma and why, also kind of explores Constantine's backstory and the Newcastle incident a bit, because like we said, basically all Constantine media has to rehash the Newcastle incident in some way. And so this kind of has like a lot of flashbacks explaining what the incident was and like how it affected Constantine and how it connects to the main plot as well. I actually watched this movie before I read the original comic with the Newcastle incident. And I was like, geez, this is horrific. And Lulu was like, oh, it's worse in the comic, which was really ominous. And then I read the comic and it was in fact worse in the comic. So my take on this movie is that it's pretty good, but at times it did feel a little bit R-rated just for the sake of being R-rated, which was a little annoying. <laughs> like at one point, John has sex with the living embodiment of the city of LA while she gives him like this handy little info dump on like how magic works in Los Angeles. And I was like, okay, you just made that a sex scene because you could. Like this mm -hmm. didn't have to be sex. And there's also this scene where John goes to like a big Hollywood party that's being hosted at a mansion that's owned by a demon. And that at that point, the movie was obviously trying to like ring every possible drop of like horrific demon stuff that it could possibly get out of it with the R rating. At one point during that part, uh, me and Lulu turned to each other and we're just like, was watching this movie a mistake? Should we turn it off? And then luckily it passed and it was not quite so horrific, but it was a little bit over the top. I mean, yeah, a Hellblazer media is, is going to be dark, whatever form it's in, but this one is definitely, yes, it's an animated superhero movie, no, you should not show it to children kind of thing. It's it's R-rated for a reason. I think it does some interesting stuff tying the Newcastle incident to, like, the demon plotline from all his engines, and I think overall it's, like, the character of John feels pretty 
accurate and John-ish to me. Like, there's a part where he pits some demons against an Aztec god, and it feels very in line with his comic self because he's sort of trying to get other supernatural beings to do his dirty work for him. And also the fact that he's able to save Chaz's daughter from the demons, but the price is really steep. He basically has to erase all of Chaz's memories of him and their friendship to uh, kind of fuel a spell to wake her up from the coma. So you get that, like, very steep magic comes at a cost to John and people around him. So I think that felt in line with the classic Hellblazer comics I had read. Yeah, I watched it and I was like, I feel like this has the Hellblazer vibes. I could recognize the story as being in line with the older comics. And I also liked the price of him having to erase his friends' memories because it's not like sometimes John's friends dying in order to save the world gets a little bit old. And I sort of liked the idea that the toll was more on him than on Shaft. I thought that was an interesting way to kind of turn things around a bit. My other rating on this movie is that it could have been more bisexual. That's all. Most adaptations of Constantine could have been more bisexual, though, so you'll get used to us saying that, I think, in this episode. So segueing into our next adaptation of Constantine, we have Constantine, the 2005 movie, which is a very loose adaptation of the Bad Habits arc from the Garth Ennis run, which we haven't talked about yet, but I can confirm is good. It's a very loose adaptation, like... So loose. I can't emphasize how much this felt like an in-name only adaptation of Constantine comics. It is interesting. One way that you can tell it's a loose adaptation is because his name is Constantine, not Constantine, and he is American, not British. He's played by Keanu Reeves in this version, and the film is set fully in LA instead of in England. I mean, there actually are Hellblazer arcs that are set in America, like very early on throughout all the comics, but he, he's just not British in this. It's just set in Los Angeles and he's American, which felt very strange to me. I was like, who is this American man? I don't have a problem with him being a brunette because Keanu Reeves would look really weird as a blonde, but also they didn't even get his suit right. It's like a black suit and tie. I was like, where is his trench coat? Where, where did you put it? Coat? But yeah, so basically that the plot of this is that a detective enlists him to investigate the mysterious death of her twin sister that most people believe is a suicide, but she believes otherwise. And as usual, they end up becoming entangled in a larger conspiracy of demons. <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts on this film, but I think my main thought is that for me, Constantine, he just didn't feel like Constantine to me in this. And I think it's because Reeves's take on John Constantine is, is much more stoic. He's not very chatty. I think... In the comics, Constantine feels much more chatty and smooth talking. Like, he does have this wide social circle, even if people keep dying. He makes jokes when he's nervous. He is smart and canny and often uses, like, his words to get what he wants. Whereas Reeves's Constantine is much more, like, man of little words, much knowledge of exorcisms, tormented backstory. Just, like, it's a different vibe. Yeah, Constantine in the comics can actually be very extroverted and social. He is not just like a grim, gritty man who sits alone in rooms, not interacting with anyone and speaking in short sentences. And it's true that like a lot of people in his life get driven away just because of bad things happening to him. But like, he's still a very sociable man. A lot of people are like, oh, Constantine, I should really make you leave. But, like, you're just fun to hang out with. So like, why don't we go to the pub and hope we, get, we hope we don't get eaten by demons or something, which is just like not really present in this movie. He just like doesn't, he just feels kind of like a man who performs exorcisms who's called Constantine. He also has a very strange friend 
the adaptation of Chas in this movie is really weird. For some reason, he's like a 14-year-old taxi driver that wants to be an exorcist like John. And I was like, why is this even called Chaz? Like, I feel like the point is that they are friends who are the same age and have like a backstory. It's not like a mentor-mentee thing. So when he appeared, I was just like, what is this child doing here? I have no idea what you're talking about. Chaz didn't exist in this movie. It's very sad that he wasn't included, but you know, he just wasn't there. It was kind of a pity, but oh well. That's so true. Yeah, I guess maybe they were saving him for the sequel or something. I think also his experiences with the supernatural in this feel quite different than in Hellblazer comics, where he is someone who intentionally gets into magic and it's something you can learn. You don't need a special magical ability you're born with or an affinity. He's just like a guy who has learned how to recite some spells and draw some things on the ground and chalk. And like anyone can learn magic in Hellblazer. But I think in this film, I sort of changed it so it's more like He has these innate supernatural abilities, like the sight, so he can see demons and angels. And people think that he's crazy as a child, so he has these like really traumatic and upsetting experiences regarding it, which I think is quite different than how Magic and John's relationship with it in the Hellblazer comics, which is like, he gets into Magic because it makes him feel powerful, and he stays because he's like kind of embedded in the world of it, even though it brings him pain. Whereas I feel like in this one, it's more like he was born psychic and then he just suffered immensely from it and is now like making the best of it. But it wasn't really a voluntary choice to get involved in the world of demons and angels. It's true. Yeah, this version of Constantine has a, I think, pretty different backstory and attitude towards magic. Like you said, he had the sight from a young age, which meant that he can see stuff like demons and angels and magic that other people couldn't and that led to him thinking that he was mentally ill and when he was a teenager he tried to take his own life because of that and as a result of that in the universe of this movie that means that his soul will go to hell when he dies and also the demons in hell really don't like him because he spent years exercising them from people they're trying to possess so basically he has at the point this movie starts built up a lot of enemies in hell who would be very happy to see him suffer when he eventually dies also this is an adaptation of the Garth Ennis storyline, Bad Habits, like we said, or Dangerous Habits, I forget which one it is. And when John learns early on in this movie that he has terminal lung cancer and will be dying and is going to have to face the music, i.e. the legions of demons who hate him very much and want to make him suffer for eternity. So those are kind of like some of the stakes in this. Like he's investigating someone's death, but also he has this personal problem, which is that every day he becomes closer to dying and internal torment. Also, Tilda Swinton is here as the Archangel Gabriel, and she is extremely gender, and I want to steal her gender and wear it like a suit. (laughs) Yeah, this movie has the Angel Gabriel, who is also a character from Ennis's Hellblazer, and is kind of unpleasant, despite being a literal angel. Like, it's, it's pretty awful, both in this and in the comic. I think in this is sort of like hanging around in either a human body or a human form on Earth, and John meets up with um, Gabriel at certain points. There is definitely like this interesting gender ambiguity thing in that Gabriel is like traditionally a male angel, but was played by Tilda Swinton. And I don't believe it's ever really like referred to with gendered pronouns in this. So there is kind of like an interesting gender vibe of like sinister androgynous angel. Kind of the same vibe as Gwendolyn Christie as Lucifer in Sandman, actually. Very much, yeah, but like over a decade earlier. I also quite liked Gabriel in this as a spoiler. Gabriel is one of the main villains because I like when villains are kind of like terrifying in their righteous belief that they're a good person doing the right thing 
and Gabriel is like super convinced that they're doing the right thing and that humans like are bad and corrupt and deserve to suffer and so actually it's like morally correct to bring about the apocalypse and I was like this is interesting I like this oh yeah I really liked that I feel like it did kind of upend the usual a demon's bad angel's good thing going on in which the angel is like humans come out of their greatest moments through suffering so i'm going to induce a lot of suffering so you can all become really noble and amazing and redeem yourselves which is a terrible thing actually and is like a horrific concept for a villain so i sort of enjoy the like terrifyingly righteous suffering will make your soul noble vibe that gabriel had going on in this also i thought the take on lucifer was very good lucifer is only in like one or two scenes but he is very sinister and also has this kind of friendly but antagonistic banter going on with Constantine where like they've had so many like a lot of time to become acquainted with the other person's reputation that they kind of meet they're like oh it's you yeah there's this good scene where like Constantine has been fatally injured and is dying and Lucifer kind of appears and he's like wearing a white suit and he like sits down on a little chair and he and like Constantine are like having a little chat while like Constantine is slowly bleeding to death and it's like kind of dark comedy but it's also kind of interesting it's like oh hey I've heard of you how's how's it going down in hell what's up how's it going and I kind of like that it was like an interesting take on the idea of like maybe the angel is really scary and hates you and maybe Lucifer is like kind of like affably evil and will like talk to you and banter with you right i did like those characters especially kind of as like parallels to each other also i did say earlier that this character did not feel much like john constantine to me but there were two moments that i did think really actually fit the vibe of constantine and the first one is when he uh lures a room of demons into a room that has a sprinkler of holy water and kills them all that was such a john constantine move he would totally do that that was kind of great it was legendary i did like that part it was pretty good and one of the other moments that i thought really felt in line for the character and him just being like a tricky person who uses his wits not just magic was a scene where he threatens a demon by being like, I'm going to bless you and give you your last rites and like absolve you of all your sins, which for a demon is basically torture to get the demon to like kind of tell him some information he needs. And then at the end, he's like, aha, you, uh, I tricked you. You can only get your last rites if you accept them. So my threat was totally empty. And I was like, that's the John Constantine I know. That was also a pretty good moment. There's also a part where he is dying and flips off the devil and that was kind of iconic and I could see his comic book character doing that. I think he did do it in the comics at one point and I was like that's also good. I can see him doing that. That is in the spirit of Constantine. Oh definitely yes. That is something that he does. Also this movie has a quite long plot line about Constantine dying of lung cancer and kind of being forced to face his own mortality and the fact that he's been speeding up by smoking a lot. And I will say, I think it was like a perfectly like good and well-acted storyline, but I have like a really hard time taking movie coughing as a sign of death seriously, because when I was in high school, I had a really mild case of pertussis, aka whooping cough, and like I sounded like I'm going to die every time I cough for months afterwards. So every time I hear someone going like, <laughs> in the movie, I'm like, that's not what I sounded like when I had a really serious cough. Uh, that is okay, well, they weren't going to, like, pie. They weren't going to, like, give Keanu Reeves lung cancer for this movie. What did you want them to do? No, I, I, this is nothing against Keanu Reeves' ability to fake cough. It's just that, like, I am very well acquainted with what, like, very bad sounding coughs sound like. So whenever someone's like, I'm going to cough delicately to show that I'm not long for this world, I'm like, that's very fake, but okay, go ahead. But what if they cough into a handkerchief and then they take the handkerchiefs away and there is blood on the handkerchief? <laughs> then we're in a Victorian drama and someone has tuberculosis usually okay fair yeah 
Okay, another thought is that this movie is not funny. And I think Hellblazer comics, while horrifying, are sometimes funny. And I think Hellblazer adaptations should be at least a little funny, even if it's like dark comedy. I did not laugh in this at once. Not even at the main character's suffering. Sometimes when I'm reading Hellblazer comics, I do kind of chortle because John is having such a bad time. Sorry, John. But this just wasn't very funny. So I think if there was like a little comedy, like just a teeny bit, it might have made it feel more like a Hellblazer comic to me. Yeah, I think that kind of ties back to the way this version of Constantine is very, like, taciturn and stoic and, like, a man of few words, which does not lead itself well to any kind of, like, banter or comedic situations. So it takes itself very seriously, I think. My bisexual rating on this movie is that it is not particularly bisexual, except there is a scene where the demon Balthazar says he's looking forward to eating Constantine. And I was like, is this supposed to be sexual? <laughs> because this seems sexual. I think he's like, mm, finger looking good. And I was just like, uh, what's going on here? Yeah, that was interesting. I don't quite know if we were supposed to interpret it as sexual, but I think it was hard not to. But I, you could argue that this movie is kind of queer and that I was watching it and I was like, I simply know in my heart that Tilda Swinton as Gabriel was many people's queer awakenings, either for gender or sexuality. And then I went and looked up like letterbox reviews and that seems to have been true. I mean, I don't really blame them. I really liked Tilda Swinton as Gabriel in this. There was like a vibe going on. I was like, this is a good vibe. I enjoy whatever this character is on screen. I liked when Gabriel like flew down and crash landed on top of Constantine and it was just like, I'm going to step on you because you're just a little puny mortal and I have wings and I can fly. Like, I don't know, the idea of angels is terrifying is fun, so I liked that. It is fun, yeah. Also, people spend a lot of time getting dunked in bodies of water in this movie, and I couldn't figure out if it was supposed to be a metaphor for baptism or something. Like, a lot. A lot, a lot of dunking in this movie. Everyone's just kind of soggy for most of its runtime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is very true. Both Constantine and the woman that he's working with whose name is escaping me, but she has the dead sister, and she's a police officer, I think. She also spends a lot of time getting dunked in bodies of water. Final final Mm -hmm. thought. Also, I think that Hellblazer media that isn't outright political is boring, and I want someone to adapt the Thatcher yuppie demon arc so badly. I know that it has aged into being like historical fiction at this point, because Margaret Thatcher is dead. This didn't just feel like it was very political to me. I think the thing about this movie is that it's a maybe like perfectly fine kind of urban fantasy noir and there are interesting stuff there's like high stakes for the main character there's some twists there's some like pretty good performances from people playing the supernatural creatures it just didn't really feel like hellblazer to me tonally it felt quite different even though there were definitely some plot points and characters that were in common it just felt like a different kind of story and not just because it was set in los angeles the interesting thing is from what i understand about the background of this movie which came out when i was all of four years old so i'm not exactly an expert on it i think them doing things like making constantine american and living in la and played by like a fairly large american star like keanu reeves i think like hollywood trying to make the movie have broader appeal and i guess it is like a known movie but also it's not really like a constantine movie so if you're a fan of the comics and you watch it you just kind of get like an urban fantasy movie with a guy called constantine who isn't really like john constantine right like it's just a different vibe i wouldn't say that it was necessarily a bad movie though it was quite slow at times actually but it just didn't feel really much like hellblazer to me 
Also, can we please talk about the fact that the actor Matt Ryan has spent years trying to play various versions of Constantine in like his canceled TV show on Legends of Tomorrow and like other DC TV shows in an animated movie. And J.J. Abrams has apparently been trying to make a Constantine TV show for HBO and only for this movie to come in and win the day since they're apparently making a sequel to this movie after almost 20 years. That's so random. I guess maybe Keanu Reeves is just famous enough that he can be like, can I do a sequel to that? And everyone be like, sure. Like, that's the only way I can see that happening. Like, much respect to Keanu Reeves, but I don't really want a sequel to this version of Constantine just because he doesn't feel like the Constantine that I like. So I'm just kind of confused by, like, who greenlit that and why. I don't know. I feel like I could be interested in it because they could do, like, a story about, like, an older jaded Constantine, which I feel like you haven't really seen on TV. Like Matt Ryan is not that old. So his Constantine feels like he's kind of the younger Constantine. So it could be interesting to have like a 50 something Constantine who's like been around the block, getting older, has like a lot of backstory and baggage. And I think that could be kind of interesting. I don't really have any expectations for the sequel because it was such a surprise. It was a real like Surprise! This movie's getting a sequel. Who asked that? I don't remember. 17 but, um, years! That's most of my life, and they're making a sequel. I would just say, it might not even actually happen. Like, lots of things get announced and then are never actually made. So I don't really have a lot of expectations for the sequel, and the fact that it maybe is so random makes me think that, like, who knows? Maybe they'll just take a lot of weird risks and it'll be interesting. But my take is that I want them to completely ignore the character and casting of Chaz in the sequel, please God, do not bring Shia LaBeouf back as Chaz. I, I do not want that. You can either not include Chaz or hot take, you could have cast Alex Winters as Chaz because I think that'd be really funny. I, I support that casting decision, honestly. I would be down for that. My other take is that they did like a holy water grenade and they did like sprinkle a holy water. And now I really need a scene where John Constantine has like a dollar store squirt gun of holy water. That's all I want in cinema. Well, someday that might happen. Constantine 2 coming to theaters near you, maybe at some point in the next 10 years, but who knows? Anyway, on to the next depiction of Constantine, I think, which we'll be discussing. Yeah, so that is not really a full Constantine story. We're talking about one episode of TV, which is the recent Netflix adaptation of The Sandman includes one episode that includes Johanna Constantine, who is... Uh, basically the female version of John. They pitched her as being like a very different character, but she's literally just John, but a woman. (laughs) She's played by Jenna Coleman, who most people know from Doctor Who, but I do not know from Doctor Who because I've never seen Doctor Who, sorry. And she is kind of a similar warlock who's a little shady and self-serving that the main character Morpheus enlists when he's looking for a magical artifact. I feel like I should mention that Joanna Constantine is in fact an already existing character from DC Comics. She is an ancestor of John Constantine who lived around the time of the French Revolution. And she is in fact also in this season of Sandman in a different episode that has a flashback to around that time period. And she is also played by Jenna Coleman. So it is true that Joanna Constantine is both an already existing character in the comics and that the version of Joanna Constantine that we'll be talking about is just a gender-flipped version of John, probably because there was enough male versions of John running around on TV. They didn't want to confuse people a lot. So when we meet Johanna, she is essentially making a living as an exorcist and is also deeply haunted by the Newcastle incident, which is a pretty par for course for a Constantine character. I 
did like it this show firmly establishes that she is bisexual there's like a list of her exes at one point and you meet her ex-girlfriend and i was like nice i do feel like she should have been grimier she's very well put together and has like a nice white coat that was way too clean for a john character and i know that john has been dapper in the past but i think women should be allowed to be a little bit grungy so i that's my take i agree with that take she looked good, and it is true that Constantine is not always, like, a total mess, but I was also like, there is no way that someone who walks around on the streets of London as much as a Constantine character does would possibly have a coat that flawlessly white and makeup that nice and hair that was, like, that sleek and nice looking. I do feel a little bit bad that uh, there were flashbacks to the Newcastle incident in this episode, and you were forced to endure the arm thing twice in one day, because you had just read the issue of Delano's Hellblazer about the Newcastle incident. And then we watched the episode of Sandman with Johanna in it. So you had to watch that happen twice in one day. Two arm things in 24 hours. It was too much. I was overcome with arm horror briefly. I'm sorry I inflicted on that you. I also feel like another thing I liked about this character is that she did feel kind of arrogant in the right way to a Constantine. I wouldn't have minded if she hated the British royal family a little bit more, but though he can't have everything, so, you know. <laughs> it was a pretty solid Constantine. If they wanted to bring her back for future episodes, I would definitely be into that, even though Constantine is really not in Sandman that much. I thought that it was a pretty good take on the character. I'm curious if her accent is, like, accurate or not, because uh, Constantine is specifically from Liverpool and has a Liverpudlian accent, which... I, I don't really know the nuances of what that sounds like because I'm American, but I presumably Jenna Collin was doing some kind of accent. I don't know if it was accurate to a Liverpoolian accent. Yeah, I really can't offer any points on the accent either. She was definitely doing an accent, but I cannot tell you if it was a good Liverpoolian accent. I also believe that Matt Ryan, who we mentioned is playing Constantine a lot, is Welsh and was therefore also, I think, doing some kind of accent in the things that we watched him in, but neither of us are from Liverpool, so I can offer no like firm points on that. I agree that I thought that this version of Constantine did feel correct in like personality-wise. Like she's kind of arrogant. She does have like some disdain for the royal family who are paying her to do an exorcism, but you know, she could have had more. She's a little bit self-serving. Uh, there's like a whole bit about her commitment issues in romantic relationships and how she thinks it's like maybe just better to like leave people before they leave her or have something bad happen to them but I was like yeah that's that's pretty Constantine of you uh, the mm-hmm. bisexuality was also quite nice oh and they also pronounced her name correctly when most other adaptations don't I believe both of the movies that we've discussed so far pronounced it Constantine but this version pronounced it Constantine which was nice because like that is I feel like a slightly distinctive factor of the character in the comics that doesn't always translate but that was cool if jenna coleman ever came back in future episodes i would totally watch her as constantine or if they did a joanna constantine spinoff i would also watch that i don't know if either of those will happen but this was a good time i think for an hour-long episode and then because we were on a bit of a tv kick at this point we decided to go watch some of legends of tomorrow to see how they portrayed john constantine I have not seen any of Legends of Tomorrow. I have friends who watch it and they have basically described it as it was a serious show about time traveling superheroes for the first season. And then they used up all of their serious plot and it became very silly and weird for the ensuing seasons. So there's a, it's like a big rotating cast of characters, some of which are sort of original creations and some of which are from DC Comics. And they bounce around time and space having adventures. 
And John Constantine ends up joining the show after his original TV show got canceled. So we went and watched a single episode of Legends of Tomorrow, which is the one where Constantine joins the team of time-traveling superheroes just to kind of see what he was like in the DC TV universe. I don't remember what this episode was called, but you could probably look it up. I think it was called something like Daddy Darkest, which I think was a reference to one of the characters in the episode being the daughter of some guy called Damien Dark. But this was like the B plot that was continuing on from some other episodes, and I had no idea what was happening whenever they cut back to it. So uh, don't ask us to explain anything that was happening there. We were just here for the British wizard. Right. So he helps them with an exorcism, and they get stuck in the past at an asylum due to uh, plot things I didn't fully understand. But I did enjoy that this is like he was coming to this TV show kind of straight off of the Constantine NBC show, which had just gotten canceled. And I guess enough people had been really annoyed about the showrunners for the Constantine show being like, John being bisexual isn't relevant to his character. We're not going to include it. That the showrunners for this show is like, haha, just watch us and like establish him as being bisexual multiple times in this episode, which I did like because I just think that it was silly for them to be like, this character who's stories are often deeply rooted in politics and identity. (laughs) We're not going to mention that he's bisexual. So I appreciated that Legends Tomorrow kind of went to the other end of the spectrum and was like, he's here, he's British, he's a wizard, he's bisexual. And I was like, yeah, cool. From what I understand, Legends of Tomorrow is also in general like a very queer show. I think like at least two or three of the other main cast in this episode alone were queer in some way. So that was like kind of unsurprising that they're more bisexual Constantine on this version than in other shows. But it was sort of nice that they were like, Constantine has arrived. We're going to have him flirt with the guy. Literally the same scene that he arrived, just to make sure you all know that we're committed to this whole bisexual thing. Also, this means that Sarah Lance, who's a character in the show who's sort of like a team leader, I think she's also maybe an assassin. I don't quite know what her deal is in the TV show because it's different than the comics. But anyway, she and Constantine hang out a lot together in the episode and there is strong bisexual chaos vibes, which is very fun. In terms of other stuff, his visual look is pretty much like the tan trench coat and the white shirt and the tie, which is what he's well known for in modern comics. And I think he probably just wears that same outfit for most of the TV show is my guess. He has a lot more magic in this show than he does in comics. And it almost has like kind of a Doctor Strange vibe. And I think, like I said, it makes sense that he has evolved to do more direct magic because especially when you have a character who's part of a team lineup, like especially on a show like Legends of Tomorrow, you have to have a character bring something to the group other than just like a vibe and his is like, he's the magic person. So I think when Constantine is on his own, he doesn't have to like fling spells around as much because he's just in a character driven story. But in this one, it's like, everyone's got to have their special skill. We have like time travelers and assassins and oh, here's the warlock guy who can do magic. So he feels like much more magical right off the bat in this show than he does in previous stuff. I'm also just like very impressed by this one actor's devotion to playing Constantine because he played him in one season of the NBC show, which was then canceled. And then he made a couple cameos on the TV show Arrow, which I watched like three episodes of way back in the day, by which I mean early high school. I don't really remember anything about it except that I didn't like it very much. And then after he got a positive response on, I believe, Arrow, 
then he transitioned from like a couple episodes in Legends of Tomorrow and then became like a main cast member for several seasons of Legends of Tomorrow and then was in like various DC TV show crossovers and was also in the animated movie that we talked about and also was in an episode of the animated Harley Quinn show which I haven't watched but I know exists and that is a lot of times to be playing one wizard guy so I guess he really likes Constantine or maybe he likes a paycheck or probably both but you know that's good for him I guess. He found a niche and he was like, I will stick to it. I think this is a pretty fun version of Constantine and I enjoyed his antics, even though his vibe is a bit different from the comics because this is like not a horror noir story. It's a silly time travel show. I kind of enjoyed that he and Sarah hook up while one of their friends is in prison. (laughs) They're like stuck in this creepy asylum and one of their friends is about to be lobotomized. They don't know about this and they're hiding out in the laundry room. (laughs) <laughs> for some reason they're like this would be a great time to act on our lust for each other and it was just like so stupid that I was like I'm down for this actually it was really fun like I said they were strong by chaos vibes and there were they're just like in this weird asylum and they're stuck in the past because of like reasons and just like everyone's like running around doing exorcisms it was pretty fun I think it was like a good like one-off episode. I did not understand what was happening in the B plot, but that's okay because he wasn't in it, so it didn't really matter to us. I do know that he sticks around Legends of Tomorrow for a couple seasons, and I think they actually ended up adapting some storylines from classic Hellblazer, but they had to do kind of a lighter and less grim version of those. I'm pretty sure they did some of the cancer arc, and I think they did some of the stuff about the Newcastle incident, but I, I don't really know all of the details. I don't believe he's on the show anymore. I think he uh, died or left or something. I don't really know. I tried to find out what was going on and just was very confused. Also, the show gave him both a boyfriend and a girlfriend, which I think is cool because that's still not super common in comics. And from what I understand, people liked both of those relationships, which is fun. Also, you know, I was thinking when I was watching this episode that I feel like mm, Constantine whether or not he's a flirt is like an interesting thing to contemplate because he is a character who's had a lot of romantic relationships in his time but they're over a very long amount of time actually and he tends to be like quite devoted to one of his partners we'll talk about kind of like his most iconic love interest i would say in a little bit because she turns up later in the ennis run but i was just thinking about this while i was watching the show because they kind of have constantine like meet and hook up with sarah lance immediately and I think he is like a character who is like, can be quite flirty, but also I don't think he's like a slut, basically. <laughs> I think that like, there's sort of two misconceptions about Constantine's relationships. And one is that he has a lot of them. That's not true. And the other one is that all of his girlfriends die. That's not true. Most of them are fine and alive after he meets them. Two of them even start dating each other and join like a weird Scottish sex cult, which actually let's not get into that. I hated it. But like, I was just thinking about that when I was watching this episode because he is like, they established that he's bisexual by having him like flirt with a male character and then hook up with a female character, which is sort of very like, I don't know, we shall show, not tell kind of thing. But it's interesting because I don't think Constantine is often that much of a flirt in the stuff I've read and it's it's usually because he's having a really bad time <laughs> like he's not really in a place to have romantic relationships that are functional and he's not like you know on tinder or something so uh I don't know where I was going with this but I think it's interesting that like the the lighter tone of this also means that he has like less committed romantic relationships as opposed to like mm-hmm. having a relationship with someone where he's into them but then like it ends really badly because of demons or stuff Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that Constantine is, like, afraid of having relationships with people. Like, when we read 
him and the Delana run, he starts a relationship with his girlfriend Zed pretty quickly. And then when he's traveling around in the English countryside, he also gets together with one of the women he's traveling with also like pretty quickly. So like he's not like, I can't have relationships because they'll die. But like he's not like hugely flirtatious. I don't think he like he's like generally fairly monogamous when he's in a relationship with one person, at least in what I've read. Like I don't think I've like read that any of his relationships have ended because he cheated on them, at least the ones that I have read in comics. But I can also see why they made him be a bit more flirty in this because he was only in one episode and I think they wanted him and Sarah to get together and then break up or something. But it was in general, I think, pretty fun. I have no particular plans to watch the rest of Legends tomorrow because I'm a very slow TV watcher and I can't really handle TV shows that have like 20 plus episodes per season because I'll just be watching them for the rest of my life. But we had like an enjoyable time watching this, I think. I did once see a clip of him from like a later episode of Legends Tomorrow where he kind of gave a speech that was like, it's my God-given right to be a bisexual using magic who hates capitalism and heteronormativity. And I was like, iconic, go off, I support you. So like, it seems like they at least got some of the vibe of the character down, even if they couldn't go quite as dark as a lot of the comics do. Mm, yeah, I mean, Vertigo is just so different from mainstream DC comics in a way that if you have him be in something that's not the main Hellblazer title, he has to be kind of a lighter, funner character. So I kind of get why he was, you know, 30, flirty and thriving in this instead of 40, tormented and dying. <laughs> <laughs> that's one way to put it. <laughs> so I think we'll now bounce back to some comics because we have talked about a lot of other adaptations. But we haven't really talked about the Garth Ennis run yet, which I think is besides the Delano run, probably like the most iconic John Constantine story in comics, which I can understand because I think it was like pretty good and had a lot of fundamental concepts of Constantine in it. So Garth Ennis is the writer that came on after Delano had done like already a bunch of issues and he did kind of like the next big batch of Constantine comics, including Dangerous Habits, which is I think probably the most famous Constantine story of all time, which is when he realizes that he has terminal lung cancer and then like goes around doing some tricky magic things involving demons in order to like save his soul and not die horribly. So that's like the most iconic storyline that Garth Ennis wrote, but he also wrote a bunch of other ones. I think our general agreed upon bottom line for the Ennis Hellblazer is that Dangerous Habits is a great storyline and there's a bunch of other pretty good stories and characters, but there are also some things that we, especially Lulu, who read more of it than I did, did not like about it. But like overall, I think we could understand why it's considered a really iconic section of his comics. Right. I think Dangerous Habits is a great storyline because it's about John confronting a problem that really cannot be involved. Like he can't solve it with the supernatural because it's just, it's lung cancer. You can't use magic to do that because magic in this world is kind of like an evil power thing. It's not like a healing thing. And he ends up having to use his wits to cure the cancer. And what he does is that he basically promises his soul to three different demons, knowing that they'll all like basically tear hell apart for his soul when he dies and start arguing about it and who really owns his soul. And that kind of gives them incentive to cure his lung cancer, to prolong their like demon tug of war thing over his soul. And I don't know, it's a really interesting storyline because it basically has John staring mortality right in the face. And it brings him to like such a low point that I think it made really good storytelling. It's actually a really short comic arc, but I think I can really see why it's one of the most iconic stories from Hellblazer because it's about what happens when like your own vices and your own bad decisions catch up to you. So I, yeah, I think it was a really good storyline. And I was like, okay, I can I can see why this is like the most iconic Hellblazer story. It's really good. I think Garth Ennis has described it as like, he hopped on to write Hellblazer 
after Jamie Delano had written like, I don't know, 40 or 45 issues. And he was like, oh man, I need to do something that John hasn't already done. What's something John hasn't done before? He hasn't died yet. And kind of immediately went to that. So I do like that it takes John to like a very different, very low place. Yeah, that's exactly correct. There's like a little bit, uh, there's like a little introduction at the volume that I read that's kind of written by Garth Ennis a while later reflecting on like his first arc that he wrote. And he basically said like he was like really intimidated when he got on to write Constantine's comics because he's a really interesting character and like he was already pretty established and Delano had like done a lot of interesting stuff in the run. It was just like racking his brains trying to think of like, is there something that Constantine hasn't done? Like some story I could give him that like he hasn't already gone through under Delano. And he was like, well, he hasn't died yet. I can do something good with that. And then he like wrote an insanely good storyline. So like actually it turns out your frantic posture syndrome brainstorming can sometimes lead to really good storylines. I also think that the Bloodlines arc that comes after that is pretty good. It involves John meeting up with Kit Ryan, and she's a woman that he knew years ago when she was dating his friend Brian, and he ends up falling for her. And he actually, uh, Brian dies early on in- His name is Brendan. Brendan, sorry. (laughs) Um, He dies, and then John kind of reconnects with Kit later and they both sort of bond over grieving Brendan and then they sort of end up falling in love. You mentioned this earlier but I also think personally John back in the day was in love with both Kit and Brendan because he's like he's always like oh I'm looking back on the good old days when it was just the three of us and he explicitly is in love with Kit romantically so then I'm like what does that imply about your relationship with Brendan John? That That's just my take on that relationship there. I think that John and Kit actually have a really great relationship and I like the emotional nuance it brought to the Hellblazer comic because their relationship is like surprisingly sweet because Kit really sees through a lot of John's tough guy act and he ends up opening up to her more than he has to a lot of his other love interests because by this point in his life I think he's pretty jaded and closed off he's lost a lot of people his relationships tend to end badly even if they don't end with the other person dying and I think Kit and John like sort of meet each other and like manage to really click and open up to each other But Kit, even though she really cares about him, basically makes him promise that she won't get involved in his dangerous supernatural stuff because she's like, I see what it does to people. I don't want any of that. I'm staying out of your world. I'm not going to ask you to leave magic behind, but I do not want to get involved in that. And that sets up this interesting conflict. Like, what does it mean for John to have finally found someone that he really loves and cares about, but also someone who can't be around magic when that is such an integral part of his life? I also really liked the Bloodlines arc. I think Kit is a really good love interest because she feels like a very real grounded person. Like she has like her own job and her own backstory and like her own family and stuff going on. So she doesn't feel like she like just exists to be in love with Constantine. She's like, I have a job and I need to go to work, but I'll like see you tomorrow. Please deal with the vampires on your own. Don't involve me and that kind of stuff. And it is true that I really like that. Like you said, Constantine at this point is pretty jaded, has gone through a lot of bad stuff, but like he has really fond memories of Kit and Brendan like from when he was younger and things weren't as bad and he hadn't gone through as much bad stuff and because of that like really close connection he and Kit end up becoming friends again and then falling in love and it means that he's kind of willing to like open up to her a lot more and it was kind of nice to like see Constantine actually like be vulnerable with someone and like talk about stuff instead of like bottling it all up and I just really enjoyed that Kit kind of like doesn't take any of Constantine's uh like over the top worrying about like people being ruined because of him seriously there's some part where she's like oh just like stopping like oh I'm constantly normal walk by path with me I have to be alone all the time like I'm gonna like 
be with you as long as you don't drive me into your dangerous supernatural stuff. So like, it's a really good arc because I think that Kit's a really strong character and I found her relationship with Constantine to be really believable and compelling. And like you said, also just like really sweet, which is kind of rare in Constantine comics in which things are usually less sweet and more terrible. I also think that reading about Kit was really interesting for me because I think a lot of the times comics these days, like modern DC comics being published like now and in like the last couple of years have kind of framed the character of Zatanna Zatara, who we mentioned before, she's a stage magician who does real magic. They kind of frame Zatanna as being like the big love of Constantine's life. And they have like this on again, off again thing. And they pop up each other in, in each other's books. And sometimes they do like team ups. And there's a lot of drama and like angst and like, will they, won't they? Which I think makes sense in a comic book writing way because Zatanna is a character who like has her own brand. She's popular. She had a solo series. She's like recognizable. She does magic of her own so you can put her in team ups. But I really think that if you read like the original Hellblazer comics, then I feel like Kit definitely comes across more as like the actual love of Constantine's life, like the person that he cared about most and like whose breakup like most affected him, I think, which is kind of interesting to go back and read when you've been reading like modern comics where it's like, Zatanna and Constantine and then you're like oh actually this is kind of like a thing that modern comics is doing because those are both recognizable figures but really I think it was Kit. I do think it was Kit. I think I have not read much after the Ennis run but John and his relationship with Kit I think is like so fundamental to his character and like when he loses her it really devastates him and I, I can't imagine it being easy to fill that kind of character spot in a comic with someone else just because I think Kit Ryan was like sort of the first and like the last of John's like real true loves like he has definitely had relationships since then but I think because Kit was his love interest for uh, such a while in a long-running comic and also felt like so fleshed out I think it's hard for someone to measure up against her she has never been adapted into any film or tv show as far as I am aware she exists only in comics only in the Ennis comics, I believe. So if you don't read this, you don't really know that she exists. But I think once you read this, you're like, oh, I love Kit. And like her relationship with John is like fundamental to, to this era of comics. And I think there are definitely things about Garth Ennis's run that I, I did not personally like that we might get into, but I do think I really liked Kit. Also, an interesting thing about Constantine kind of being like in a good place in his life after the dangerous habits arc and like he's dating kit and he's not dying and he's like doing a lot better is that i think a lot of the stories that he's in are also like a lot lighter and kind of like happier like there's a christmas issue where john meets like the fading old god of festivities and like goes out drinking with him and helps him regain his spirit and realize that people still celebrate christmas in modern day times just as like pagan and it's like a nice issue about like two guys hang out on christmas and then like there's an issue where John's like oh no I forgot to buy a kit a Christmas present but I have to deal with all the supernatural drama first but I need to buy her a present because I want to buy her one and that's kind of cute or there's like an issue where he meets a vampire king who tries to convince John to become a vampire and become like his right hand man and John's like eh, actually I'm happy as I am and your life kind of sucks I wouldn't want to only live at night and drink blood uh, bye I'm gonna go back to my apartment with my girlfriend and like stuff like that is just kind of like a little bit lighter and happier also, there's an issue where John turns 40 and he starts off having this existential crisis where he's like, oh my god, I'm so old, I'm turning 40. But then a bunch of his friends kind of turn up and celebrate, including Swamp Thing, who grows him some weed. 
and they all just like have a good time and Zatanna Zatara is there and like the main conflict of the issue is that they kind of trashed the apartment when they got drunk and Kit comes back and is like you're cleaning that up and it's like that's the whole stake is just like John's birthday party but of course that kind of light tone doesn't last but I think when Kit is there she is good for John's life but and also kind of like lightens the tone of the comic a little bit because he's in a, a better place instead of being full of woe and angst and loneliness this does of course end up with Kit breaking up with John because nothing good can last in comics because she sort of gets too entangled in the dark side of his magical life and that endangers her and she does manage to hold her own against some bad guys but she's like, you know what? I said I wasn't going to get involved in your magical life. I just got endangered. This is like crossing the line. I'm out. And she breaks up with him and they like end their relationship. And but she's not really demonized for it, which I really appreciated. It's it's more like Kit had set a boundary and he broke it. And she didn't want to become a casualty in his life. And he's deeply upset and devastated by the end of this relationship. But I think neither John nor the narrative blame Kit for this and I think actually the comic is quite sympathetic to her. There's even issues about her returning home to Belfast because she's from Ireland and has been living in London for a while and kind of reuniting with her family after living in London and getting to see her side of the story and how her like end of the relationship has affected her and even though John goes to like basically one of the lowest points in his life after Kit goes home to Ireland and he becomes homeless and he drinks a lot and he becomes an alcoholic and he's like basically having like the worst time ever except maybe right after Newcastle the story is never like oh Kit's so terrible she broke his heart what a horrible woman it's more like yeah well sometimes you have good things in life and they can't last and Kit prioritizing like her safety is not a bad thing because magic can be really dark and evil in Hellblazer comics and she's just sort of trying to stay alive so I don't know. The ending of it is like very sad, but I felt like it was sad in like a satisfying way as opposed to just like, ugh, that was terrible. I haven't read this particular comic because I wasn't able to get it through the library during my great Constantine comic reading binge. So I have only read up until the point where Constantine and Hit are just like living happily in London pretty chill. But I do want to read it because I think even though it will make me sad, I'm interested in reading an arc in which Constantine has a breakup in which nothing really bad happens to the woman and she is fine. Actually, she just like wants to end things because she's afraid of being dragged into it further. Another thing about the NS run that I think is quite different from previous ones is that in contrast to the Delano run, which felt very down-to-earth with very little magic, there's a lot more about angels and demons in the Ennis run. It's not just that the lung cancer arc involves John kind of tricking some demons into curing his lung cancer. It's also that there's just like a lot more supernatural characters in this. So one of the side characters that gets introduced is this succubus demon named Ellie, who has this whole dramatic backstory where she was in love with an angel and they had this kind of star-crossed Romeo and Juliet love that ended really badly and now she kind of hangs around Earth helping John out and also you get introduced to Ennis's version of Ga the angel Gabriel who is like terrifying and does all these really horrific things in the name of God and is the inspiration for Gabriel in the 2005 Constantine movie so I feel like it's just interesting to see how different authors inhabit the world of Hellblazer. Delano I think was much more concerned with the human side of things, whereas Ennis works in a lot more like epic battles between heaven and hell with John being stuck in the middle vibe. Yeah, which is not to say that I think the Garth Ennis run lacks any kind of human emotion. Like we just spent ages talking about Kit Ryan and that. There's also a really interesting part in 
dangerous habits where Constantine is like in a cancer ward and he befriends like this really old man who's also dying of cancer and they like talk a bit and they become like pretty close and are like bonded by their common experiences. And at the end of the arc, Constantine manages to cure his own cancer but when he goes back to the war to talk to the man again he learns that he's died and so it's kind of like this constantine saved himself but he can't save everyone arc which i found a really interesting way to kind of tie out an arc that involves like quarreling demons and the devil and like gabriel being like this like horrifying angel who's like why would i help you humans just like should suffer so I think Ennis usually does like a lot more like big like heaven and hell demon stuff, but I don't think it necessarily lacks human connections. It's just kind of interesting to compare it to the Delala run, which is very heavily focused on like basically only humans, and then the Garth Ennis run brings in a lot more supernatural elements. I think like the Delano era of Hellblazer, there was also stuff I didn't like about the Ennis Hellblazer, unfortunately, and it's not stuff you read as much because it sort of comes near the tail end. I think for both of them, by the time I got to the end, I was like, all right, let's wrap this up. But I don't know, I just like, there was stuff I really did not like about this arc. So one is that Garth Ennis tries to write some storylines about racism. And, you know, they're about how police brutality is bad and how Black British people are unfairly targeted. And those are all like, I think, good themes to explore in Hellblazer. But I felt like the way that Black characters were like brutally killed and called racial slurs on page felt kind of unnecessarily gratuitous. It's the kind of thing where I'm like, I think that you're trying to make like smart social commentary, but was this particular thing necessary to make your point? Maybe not. I think there's a difference between like, you know, people being dragged to hell and like depicting actual bad things on page. And I think for me, it leaned a little bit towards being gratuitous. There was also a storyline about one of John's old girlfriends becoming a drug addict that I didn't like. I don't know. I maybe won't go into details about that. Also, a very, very bizarre plotline involving zombie JFK. <laughs> Do not make me explain that. I think, like, for every Hellblazer issue that's, like, emotionally tense and well-written, there's at least one Hellblazer issue where you're just like, I cannot explain what was going on here, and I cannot explain what was going on there with that. Also, I don't know. There, like, the stuff about the demons from Dangerous Habits comes back at the end, but I felt like it was a little bit anticlimactic, so I don't know. The end arc of Hellblazer is called Rake at the Gates of Hell, great title it's a reference to a song but i don't know you probably are fine having left off that bud lines i don't think you were like really missing anything it felt a little bit like a comic arc that went out with a whimper not a bang i felt similarly about the delano run actually by the end of it i was like okay let's let's get this over with <laughs> there was some stuff i didn't like about that mostly i spent a lot of the delano run being very stressed that something bad was going to happen to this young girl that john be friends called Mercury instead of paying attention to the actual plot. So I don't know. Both of them had some stuff that I didn't end up loving. But there are parts about the Ennis run that like is deeply iconic for a reason. Like Dangerous Habits is a fantastic storyline. And I can see why everyone who like adapts Constantine stuff is obsessed with it. I just feel like there's also stuff that I don't think is strong. Yeah, I think when you're reading comics like this, it does kind of eventually become clear that you're reading like older stuff from like 30 or 40 years ago and there's stuff in it that has not aged super well and that they would probably maybe not write this way today or maybe they still would but they would get like more pushback against it i don't know i think it's also true that at a certain point 
I think after someone has written enough arcs of the same comic with the same character, they perhaps start to run out of ideas a little bit. And then you get weird issues like Constantine going to the beach and hallucinating about the nuclear apocalypse, which at which point I'm just kind of like, could be like, get someone else new in here with some new ideas that are not that. But ultimately, I think both Delano and Ennis have like some pretty iconic stories about Constantine, which I really appreciated reading. Okay, I'm sorry. I have to disagree with you. I actually liked the nuclear meltdown issue. It was really weird. But I think it was like reflecting the horrors and anxieties of the time, which were about like, you know, nuclear meltdowns and nuclear power. And I actually love it when Hellblazer is like really grounded in the specific politics and anxieties of a specific time period. So yes, the nuclear reactor issue was incredibly weird. And I don't totally know why Jamie Delano wrote that, but I liked it. And also John wore some really weird sunglasses in it. So like I got that out of it at least. Well, I think my opinion on it might have been slightly affected by the fact that I had thought that Delano's run was supposed to end several issues ago, so I picked up the next volume thinking it was only going to be the Garth Ennis run, and I was like, oh boy, I can't wait to read Dangerous Habits, and I was like, well, this isn't Dangerous Habits, so that was possibly slightly affecting my opinion of it just a little bit. Okay, that's fair. Like, the way that I read these comics was a little weird, because I was getting all of these really old trade bind-ups, and sometimes it was really unclear where like one author's arc started and the other one ended. Like I also picked up what I thought was supposed to be Dangerous Habits. And there was like this really weird story about slaughterhouses. And I was like, what? This isn't what I came here for. I think it was like written by Grant Morrison, maybe. And no offense, I don't like Grant Morrison's writing. Sorry, I know that they're like a popular and influential writer, but I thought the X Men comics were terrible. But yeah, sometimes you're kind of like, with a long comic like this, the fact that there's so many writers on it can get a little confusing at times. So I think we've talked about two pretty iconic comic runs, two movies, an episode of TV, another episode of TV. So I think we've kind of like done as much Constantine as we could feasibly fit in one episode. So maybe we should do some wrap up thoughts on Constantine as a character and what we have read and what we've thought about the different adaptations. Because boy, there was a lot of different adaptations going on there. I think by the end, I was feeling a little bit burnt out on Hellblazer comics because I read quite a lot. I requested four massive volumes of Hellblazer that were like 10 issues each, which is about twice as many issues as most comic volumes have from like college's interlibrary loan system. And I went to go pick them up and the librarian literally said, goodness gracious, when he saw how many comics I was there to pick up and like steadily read them over the course of like two months. So at the end, I was just like, I think I'm dealing with a little bit of constant time overload, which is why it's good. I think we had a little time to let our thoughts percolate before we recorded this episode, because now I have like actual thoughts and not just like, I'm convinced myself to read all the comics. Hooray. So I, I've read quite a lot of them. Yeah, the reason that I didn't read up until the end of the Garth Ennis run is that I requested like a chunk of comics through in her library loan. And I was like, I'll start with those. And then when I'm done with those, I'll go on to the next one. And then they arrived and they had like, they were like an inch thick each. And I was like, holy cow, that's more comic than I thought. So I read them all. And then by the end, I sort of felt like, like when you eat a lot of turkey at Thanksgiving and you can't imagine eating anything else except eating things with reading more Constantine comics. So I just didn't read anymore because I couldn't imagine reading anymore. And so that is why I have read less than you. No, that's so fair. But I think this was a really interesting deep dive into the character because Constantine, I think if you were interested in him, you really have to go back to the roots of his character to find out what he is like and what's shaped his character because modern incarnations of him feel so different from the like grungy blue collar warlock of Jamie Delano's run 
like he's flashier he's kind of funnier he's maybe not as much of an asshole now so I liked going back to the very beginning and sort of seeing the character and then also seeing how he's evolved and I, I still like Constantine as a character I think he's super interesting the way that he is kind of an anti-hero the way that he uses magic that stuff is all catnip for me I do like characters that are a little bit evil sometimes I think that when I started my big deep dive into Constantine I was like somewhat interested in him and I'd read like a couple appearances which I thought he was an intriguing and interesting character but I think like doing this whole big deep dive and like reading the older comics with him that kind of established some like important facts about him and evolved his character in interesting ways I think has like really established like my deep love for him as a character so I think he's a really interesting and complex figure who has managed to evolve over a lot of page time and a lot of years which isn't necessarily something that most other comic book characters are given because most characters unless you're like batman or something don't have like 200 issues solo runs in which you can like explore every aspect of a character's psychology and backstory and relationships but constantine did get that and so i think he's to me a really interesting character who is often ruthless and willing to do bad things for the sake of the greater good, like feeding a childhood friend to a demon, or even just doing bad things because he wants to live. But he's also someone who actually does care about other people a lot, and he tries to do good. And he's also, like, a very clever person who's always coming up with some kind of interesting scheme that's fun to watch unfold over the pages of an arc. And when he does do magic, it's always kind of, like, an interesting type of magic with an interesting cost and an interesting slant to it so like he's just a character that I enjoyed reading a lot about and so I think it was like really worthwhile to go back and read the older comics like I think sometimes people are hesitant to read older comics because it can be so hard to figure out where to start but in this case it's kind of like well you start at issue one and you read on until you feel like you've read enough which I think is a pretty good way of doing it yeah that was helpful I mean he's introduced in Swamp Thing but he's just like hi my name's John I'm a British guy who knows things about magic and let's take it from here. So you can kind of not read that if you don't want to. Also, we didn't talk about it a lot because I wasn't like madly in love with the plot of it, but I did think it was really funny that there was a later Delano arc that was basically John Constantine versus the English countryside in which at one point he does some drugs and has a really bad trip and is terrified of cows. And I thought that was hilarious. Oh yeah. The fact that he's like such a city slicker who like lives in London all the time and then he has to go on the run because he's been framed by murder and he ends up in the English countryside. And he's just having a terrible time because there's like cows and weird mushrooms and soggy moss. There was some stuff I didn't like about that arc, but I think just like the vibe of him being so fished out of water was quite funny. And I would love to see something like that more often. Like he's often such a suave character who like, even when he's not put together, he like knows what's going on. So it was sort of fun to see him like thrown completely off his rhythm. <laughs> I also think it's kind of interesting that Constantine's comic is technically called Hellblazer, but I feel like he's sort of evolved to like often not even really be associated with that name, which I think is because his name is really cool because you have like the very regular first name of John, and then you have the extremely cool last name of Constantine, and then you combine them and you get like John Constantine, which is a very like memorable name. So I feel like a lot of the times he's not even really called Hellblazer in modern comics anymore, like his comic series will be called that but he'll just be called Constantine when he shows up in other things and I just think it's like kind of interesting to watch the evolution of like characters names versus like the like names that are referred to in comics and I thought that was like one interesting case where he like kind of has two iconic names actually. Also speaking of evolution it's kind of funny to see like 
his influence on other characters in the urban fantasy genre, including like really blatant knockoffs. Like I was watching Doom Patrol a couple months ago and there's a character that's like literally just Constantine with a different name. I forget his name, but he was like this kind of amoral British warlock guy there to save the day. And I was like, that, that's just John Constantine, but with a different name. <laughs> yeah, or like I have never watched this show because I value my sanity and watching good television, but I am aware that the Angel of Castile on Supernatural, like his character design is literally just Constantine. Like he has the same like coat tie suit combo. And I'm like, why did you do that? And then like attempt to beat the gay allegation that he based his visual look off like the most iconic bisexual man in like all of urban fantasy. I mean, it makes sense to have an homage to Hellblazer if you're doing, like, a show about angels and demons. It's still <laughs> but funny, I'm, though. I've also never seen Supernatural, so that's kind of the extent of my knowledge. But I think Constantine knockoffs, they're everywhere if you know what to look for. Is there a British man who's a little bit grungy and has a trench coat and knows things about magic? Does he come after the year 1989? He might be a Constantine knockoff. I don't think that Gambit from X-Men Comics is a Constantine knockoff because he is from Louisiana, but I think that if he and Constantine met, it would be really funny. It would just be like the Spider-Man pointing meme because they're actually very similar people. Wait, why are they similar people? Well, they both have trench coats. They both kind of have like a, a bad backstory that they're running from. In Gambit's case, it's like a thing involving a bunch of mutant death. They're both kind of like, they tend to use their wits a lot and like steal from people and they're kind of like being tricky they also have at least one girlfriend that they're very devoted to. Mm, I see. I don't know much about Gambit other than him being Rogue's boy toy, which I think is very nice for him. I think it's interesting to read the older Hellblazer comics and then compare them with how he's depicted in modern DC comics because the kind of disappearance of the Vertigo label as like a comic series that has like a lot of ongoing titles means that Constantine has kind of got his edge dulled over recent years. He's like a lot less ruthless. He's like a lot less of like a true anarchist who's like, I hate cops and the monarchy all the time. His stories are like a little bit less dark and he does a lot more conventional Doctor Strange style magic. I think this was kind of inevitable because he got basically reabsorbed back into the main DC Comics continuity. And now he does stuff like team up with Batman or Zatanna Zatara or like the Legends of Tomorrow team. Uh, so it's like kind of inevitable, but it's like a little bit sad, maybe, because I kind of liked the vibes of the original Vertigo title. And it's sort of too bad they're not really doing that anymore. Me too. I also think comics just don't run as long as they do now. There are still some kind of darker DC comics because they have their black label comics, which I think are basically like Vertigo and that they are kind of darker and grittier. But I think it would be very, very unusual for a comic to run that long now because everything just gets canceled after 12 issues. <laughs> I did hear that Cy Spurrier did a good recent Hellblazer comic, which I believe was kind of going back to the dark and gritty roots of the original Hellblazer, which I'm interested to check out. But that only ran for a couple of issues. I think comics just don't really have that long running sense as much more, or at least solo characters don't. Like maybe team books will run for a while, but not so much solo titles. I think that might be why Constantine doesn't have like the space to be the dark and gritty Constantine that he used to be. 
So I feel like one of the last things I want to say about Constantine is that I feel like the best Constantine stories combine some kind of supernatural or magical aspect with like real human emotion. Like I think I'm not necessarily into Constantine stories that are like only about family drama and I'm not really into ones that are like only big battles between heaven and hell. I think I really like stuff like Dangerous Habits which is you know about demonic bargains but it's also about Constantine facing his own mortality and his guilt over the fact that he gets to live off the old man in the cancer ward and stuff like that. I think the intersection between like the magic and the human is what I find most interesting about the character in his comics. Agreed. I think Constantine is in some ways also kind of a garbage human, but that's why I think he's so interesting. He's very complex when writers really give him the chance to be because he's selfish, but he wants to help other people. He's ruthless, but in a way he really does care about others. He's got magic, but he's better at tricking people. He is isolated from his family, but also they still deeply affect him. There's just a lot going on with him that I think you can really dig into. Like, he does cool stuff like tricking the devil into drinking holy water and then making an enemy of um, him for eternity so he can save the soul of one of his friends. But also he does, like, dumb human stuff like trashing his apartment on his birthday. (laughs) Yeah, I think he's like a comic book character who manages to feel very human at times, which is kind of rare, but I like that. So I think it's one reason I find him compelling. Oh, I just have to mention, when I was doing research on Constantine Comics to read for this podcast episode, I discovered that there is a middle grade graphic novel by the author Ryan North called Johnny Constantine, which is about Constantine as a middle schooler solving like supernatural crime or something and I think this is possibly one of the funniest concepts for graphic novel that I've heard about in my entire life because the concept of the DC middle grade graphic novels is to introduce younger readers to iconic characters and so like they'll read like the Teen Titans kid book and then go on read the like the regular Teen Titans book and I think that the case of them making a Constantine book is really funny because I personally would not want my 10 year old to read that graphic novel and then graduate to reading real Hellblazer comics personally and just like the idea of it amused me a lot. Okay, but also Ryan North wrote Squirrel Girl, which I genuinely in my heart believe is a phenomenal comic. So I would trust him to write a middle grade Hellblazer comic, even though that's a pretty weird concept. Not gonna lie. I I do think that like, it's probably not a bad comic because Ryan North is good at writing things that are really silly, but also like fun and often have some kind of emotional heart to them. Like he managed to make Squirrel Girl into a great character that I cared about. So I'm sure that his comic about... 12-year-old John Constantine or whatever is is good. That is true, and I will acknowledge that. And I also think that Constantine's comics and adaptations can be a bit of a mixed bag, but when they're good, I think they're very good. Like, Dangerous Habits is one of those things that you're like, man, no wonder the storyline is iconic. It's pretty good. And, like, the Constantine movie, I think, is not necessarily... If you're looking for like a a comic book accurate Hellblazer adaptation, you're not going to find it, but it is at least like a solidly done urban fantasy movie. I think I probably will continue reading Constantine comics because there's a lot more I have left to go through. I definitely want to read the Mike Carey run and finish the Tinian run and probably read the Spurrier run. Mostly Constantine has been written by men. I think the only like long Constantine comic I'm aware of written by someone who's not a man is Ming Doyle helping co-write Constantine the Hellblazer. So I've been reading a lot of comics by men, which I don't always read a ton of comics by. I tend to like gravitate towards comics by women lately. But I don't know, he's an interesting character. And even though, you know, the 50 plus issues 
of Hellblazer that I did read. Actually, no, I think I might have been up to like 75 issues at a certain point. Did plumb a lot of the possibilities for stories featuring that character. I think he's someone that is always getting into trouble in various ways. So you can sort of keep endlessly spinning new problems for Constantine to face, which is probably why he's great for a long running story because you can either pull the yield trick of this person we never mentioned from his backstory is back and causing problems, or you can create new problems for him to face for the first time. So you really can't run out of possibilities for him, I guess. That's pretty true. Yeah, he's one of those characters you can just kind of like endlessly pull things out of his backstory and then like pretend they've been there all along. I don't really know what the future of Constantine adaptations is supposed to look like because there's like maybe an HBO series in the works and maybe the Constantine movie sequel and presumably Matt Ryan is like trying to like get back into playing the character. Who knows really? So I don't really know like is there going to be a Constantine movie or a TV show or like another animated series? I have no idea. HBO show that was in production for a while did intrigue me. I actually don't know if it's still in the works or not. But I read like a leaked description of it and I heard some rumors about the casting. And I liked that they were considering casting a Black actor as Constantine because I actually think that's a great way to explore the themes of like him being someone who kind of understands oppression in society. And I think in the original comics, it's very much through like a class perspective. But I think it's not, you know, important to his character that he be a blonde white guy. I think you could definitely cast... A black actor as Constantine and if it was handled correctly write like some really interesting powerful stories about that. I think the description for the HBO show did not sound too much like Hellblazer to me like I think it was adapting the Newcastle incident but making John like less directly responsible for it which is making it less interesting to me personally but were they to like get back to working on that TV show I think I'd be interested to see how it works. I think it could be interesting to see it as a live action show that's maybe more like comic accurate in terms of tone I guess they had a Constantine TV show, but it was on like the CW or something. So they couldn't even show him smoking, which is kind of silly because I feel like you need a kind of dark HBO type streaming service to really do Hellblazer justice. So if that ever gets back into development, I would be intrigued to see where that goes. I don't know if it would be good, but it would be interesting to see. I think um, ultimately whatever happens, Constantine is our favorite dirtbag warlock. And there are still some good stories about him out there and many more to be read. Okay. And with that, we've been Never the Twins Shall Meet. If you'd like to keep up with our further podcasting misadventures, you can find us on social media. We're on Instagram at Never the Twins Shall Meet, on Tumblr at Never the Twins Shall Meet.tumblr.com, on Twitter, as long as Twitter still exists, that seems to be dubious, at Never Twins Cast. And we also have a website, Never the Twins Shall Meet.com. If you've enjoyed this episode or others, please feel free to go leave us a rating or review on the podcast app of your choice. Thanks for listening.